VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Thursday, May the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Fonts King is sitting in the producer's chair today. You'll be speaking with Fonts when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And when it is socked in solid here in town with fog, can't even see across the road here to Kenmount Terrace, but... Hopefully there's a break coming soon because I think we're all a little bit fed up with this type of weather. Not surprising weather, though, all the same. All right, I kind of hesitate to do this on the 4th of May, but someone offered me this salutation this morning in the hallway. May the 4th be with you. So apparently today to celebrate all things Star Wars. I don't dislike Star Wars. I think I've seen all the movies. Pretty sure I've seen them all. But, of course, it is just a massive franchise. Back in 2012, Disney acquired the Star Wars franchise for $4 billion from George Lucas. The estimated value of the Star Wars franchise at this moment in time, somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 billion for a movie franchise. Absolutely extraordinary. And, oh, is it today? Uh, What does he want me to put that out there? Happy 40th birthday to Dave Williams. I didn't know it was his birthday today, so I hope you're enjoying your day. David does great work for us here on the program and throughout the day here at VOCM. Happy birthday, Dave. All right, last night, not the start the Devils were looking for. Got clipped by Carolina 5-1. Not much of a game. And in the Oilers game against uh, Las Vegas, where many Canadian hockey fans are hoping at least one of our Canadian teams make it all the way, the Oilers lost 5-4. Four goals for Dreisaitl, but that doesn't mask the disappointment of game one for the Oil. Okay, let's go to the water. So... Different sides have been asking for the government to get involved in this snow crab standoff. And everybody knows the story at this moment in time. I've always been a little bit confused with exactly what they want the government to do. I suppose the specifics for uh, seasons to come would be the issue regarding outside buyers. But apparently, Fisheries Minister Derek Bragg has written the union asking them to have a secret ballot to ask harvesters a very simple question. Are you a snow crab harvester ready and willing to go fishing now for the price as it is currently set at $2.20 per pound? Remember, the Association of Seafood Producers back on April 28th wrote the union and they said they would guarantee the price of two twenty for 21 days. So they've only got a couple of weeks left if they want to fish the crab at two twenty a pound. It looks like the market continues to soften. So after 21 days, I think the consensus is, is there will be a reapplication by the processors to see a further reduction in the price. Now, the union is not pleased with this particular initiative taken on by Minister Bragg. They say it may indeed contradict the Fishery Industri- Fishing Industry Collective Bargaining Agreement Act. A quote directly says, Minister Bragg is directly undermining the elected leadership of the union, and it's clear he has absolutely no handle on the crisis facing this industry, let alone the basic laws governing his portfolio. That's released directly from the FFAW. They go on to say, instead of stepping in as provincial regulator to change the rules surrounding processing licenses and the flawed price-setting process, Minister Bragg continues to be a spectator. Whoa. So it was just a couple of weeks before the snow crab fishery. All sides looked like they were willing to work together, and now we find ourselves at a very contentious standoff. But, you know, I understand what the FFAW is saying, but without question, there is a significant number of harvesters, so they tell me directly. I've even had harvesters say, I just created this email to email you to say that many of my snow crab harvesting buddies, we need to get on the water. So that's up to the individual harvester. And, of course, we've seen what would be 
Sometimes people are identified as a threat or simply painting a picture of what it might mean if you break ranks with the solidarity of the tie-up and get out there on the water to go for 220. But here we go. Okay, uh, apparently we're going to speak with someone from the FFAW here soon. And sticking with the fishery once again, now for the second time in a week, processors are not buying lobster. I think the union probably views this as retaliation for the snow crab-related matters. So Mr. Spingle, apparently Jason Spingle is from the FFAW, is going to come on. The current price is $10.42. They're looking for a change in legislation to allow the harvesters to sell the product. And, of course, this is a live product that we're trying to sell here. So... Obviously, there is so many different brackets seasonally inside the fishery that whether it be some amendments to be uh, put in place to make positive change, hopefully for all sides, for the next go-round, because I don't even know if you can make amendments stick at this moment in time to get through the snow crab or the lobster season, pragmatically speaking, but snow crab, standoff. And I wonder what the results would be if that secret ballot took place. And I'm sure there's some hesitation that just in case it came back with 51% or 45%, whatever the number might be, where harvesters say, I can make it work. Not going to get rich, but I can make it work. Put some money in my pocket, pay my crew, keep going. And, you know, uh, Greg Pretty, the president of the FFAW, has long contended that harvesters are willing to go bankrupt versus go fish for 220 pounds. A little counterintuitive, but we'll uh, pick the brain of Mr. Spingle after we come back from our initial break. So lobster fishery, second time in a week, not buying. Also, the curious story about the dead seals washing up, and someone sent me a picture that looks very much like a walrus washed up on a beach. So someone who walks on Chamberlain's Beach out at CBS said one day they were walking their dog and saw there was a couple of dead seals. And in short order, the next day or so, there was as many as 20 dead seals on the, bo- on the beach. So I don't know what's leading to it. There's a lot of thought out there that it might be interaction with fast-moving ice but their bodies are mangled. Some have lost their head. So it does kind of feel like maybe there was some ice involvement here. But now begins the racket about who cleans it up. So this particular citizen out on CBS has written DFO, has not heard back about are they going to clean up this, these dead seals. Remember when we've had some whales wash up, and it was the municipality asking the province, and the province saying it's not their responsibility, and then turning to the federal government, and uh, forever and a day it took, and by that time the area had become rancid with the rotting carcasses of these whales. Now, of course, a different implication when we're talking about the size of a seal or a walrus, but if you want to chime in, especially if it's in other places, because it's not just on Chamberlain's Beach. I've seen pictures from a variety of locations on the island in particular with these seals, so if you want to take it on, let's go. So we've heard about the opposition's concerns regarding procurement, specifically regarding the replacement for Her Majesty's Penitentiary. When the government initially put aside or said about $200 million, that was back in 2019. An affordability envelope has now been understood to be $325 million, but the cost now looks like it's between $500 and $525 million, so a long ways away. The big issue that they're pointing to, I think people understand there will be some increase in cost, given the realities of life and inflation and otherwise, but it's the entire procurement process that we've got to make sure we get it right. Now, there was three initial bidders, two dropped out. be interesting to know why they dropped out. So when you only have one bid left in place, does it mean that the government should go back to the market, see if there's any other interested construction companies out there that want to be involved in this project? But I think we absolutely have to get this right on that front. Moving off into some more infrastructure-related issues, had a really interesting and informed caller late in the program yesterday 
talking about how their government assesses the needs, this, in this case, for road work. So you've heard the stories, right? Unprecedented spend, $225 million in road work in culverts and whatnot this year. And then the announcement of uh, cooperation between the province and the federal government, $153 million each for an additional some 55 kilometers of twinned highway and 16 kilometers worth of passing lane coming out of Port of Basque. Okay. The caller made the ultimate point, I think, in wondering what the traffic flow assessment looked like. It's specifically referring to the Team Guzhu Highway. With the numbers he uses, and he's done this not only as a hobby but professionally, and some of the software out there that you can indeed pump in the numbers to see what traffic flow and reduction of congestion might look like and the travel time reduction with this additional highway work, specifically Team Guzhu. He says he just can't see how this looks like anything but the politics of pavement and whether or not we're going to see the reduction of travel time of some three minutes if Team Guzhu links in with the Robert Hollis, you know, the road to the shore. So a fair point. So I guess the question is to government, how did you come up with this particular number of 55 additional kilometers of twinned highway and whatever the eventual price tag will be for the completion of the Team Guzhu? I think people want to see it completed, but our wants... Uh, compared to the data, are probably two different things. So when we get a chance to speak with Minister Lovelace, he's the minister responsible for transportation and infrastructure, I wonder, can he provide us with the official assessment of what it really means and the need for? Look, I and many of you would feel the same way, that when you have the opportunity to be on a twinned highway, it does come and enhance safety, specifically regarding the potential for head-on collision. It doesn't do anything about distracted drivers or speeding or moose and the like. So Miles was the caller's name. Pretty intuitive conversation that, well, pardon me, intuitive commentary coming from the caller, not necessarily me, but I'd like to know whether or not they've entertained that type of work. And now the province, we've been talking about this forever and a day, and if you listen to the show frequently, you know that I'm a supporter of installing some speed cameras, whether it be in school zones or at some notorious red lights or in different communities. So apparently, Digital Government and Service NL Minister Sarah Studley says that there is going to be a pilot project given some amendments to be afforded to the Highway Traffic Act. Okay, that sounds great. No real details about where they'll be, no details uh, necessarily about who will be responsible for administering the tickets, but I think it's a step in the right direction. She's also talking about the potential for cameras on school buses. It's not included in this particular pilot project this year, but that's also probably a very good idea. And remember, Portugal Cove St. Phillips has taken the bull by the horns very recently to allow their municipal officers to uh, pull people out for speeding, distracted driving, passing school buses, or what have you. So the cost recovery model, if you look at different provinces about speed cameras, it's real. There's absolutely an upfront capital cost. But anything to slow down the motoring public, I think, is a really solid idea. People will talk about privacy matters and the need for front plates and who's driving your vehicle, all of those. But I think we can attend to those in short order, but it sounds like a good idea to me. British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, they all have these speed cameras in place. It's only Atlantic Canada and the territories that do not have them in place. So your thoughts on these speed cameras, I think it's a good idea. How about you? All right, interesting volley in the House of Assembly yesterday regarding support for students who need additional supports, whether it be on the autism spectrum, a behavioral issue, uh, learning from the Carter Churchill Human Rights Commission case. And then it's this, this conversation about one young fellow, Ashton Pierce. Uh, he's from Howley, and he goes to school in Deer Lake. He needs someone to ride the bus with him, a student assistant to ride the bus for about an hour, uh, both trips back and forth each day. So apparently now, after the questioning, there has been an accommodation made for this young man. 
And it's got to be that way. You know, again, it would be nice to know what lessons we've learned as a government from the Carter, uh, the Carter Churchill case to ensure that whether you're a child with exceptionalities, you're on the spectrum, or anything else, or you're a gifted student that needs to be additionally challenged, because the success of individuals coming through the K-12 system is going to be so, always was, but even more so now, so critically important to the future of the province. So, yeah, and I'm sure, you know, this young Adam Pierce, and apparently the next day when he showed up at the school bus stop, there was no student assistance, so maybe a bit of a communication breakdown. His father, Chris, is thanking the school bus driver for ensuring that young Adam could get back in school. He was out for weeks. Simply not good enough. So what actual steps have been put in place to learn on a couple of fronts? The issues regarding children with exceptionalities being dismissed from daycare and whether or not they're going to make an adjustment for similar to the K-12 system to allow retired teachers to go back in and perform one of these roles as an inclusion worker without jeopardizing their pension. They can do that for up to 90 days in the K-12 system. So that front, school safety, support for students, because there's a lot of big looming questions that need some answers. One second, a sip of coffee. We're back. All right, and also not necessarily inside the schools, but schools and the business community. I don't think artificial intelligence is front of mind for many. But it, the growth is exponential, a breakneck pace, and in just this past week, there's been some pretty significant investments in conversation regarding artificial intelligence. Okay, so Toronto AI company Cohere, talking about raising $250 million for expansion of their AI con concentration. Thomson Reuters, of course, a media company, looking for a deeper investment in artificial intelligence. IBM expected to pause hiring, uh, pause hiring and losing some 7,800 jobs with their further investment in artificial intelligence. On that front, the CEO of uh, IBM saying working remotely it may jeopardize your career. Yeah, maybe sit this one out, buddy. If you're going to slash 7,800 jobs with the use of technology, then maybe, just maybe, you can remain on the sidelines and stop talking like that. Now, the person that they consider the godfather of artificial intelligence is a guy named Jeffrey Hinton. He's a University of Toronto scientist. So he is the person that is largely responsible, and of course many other people have taken up the charge, with the creation of and the expansion of artificial intelligence. He just quit his job at Google so that he could be more able to speak out about the dangers of artificial intelligence. Well, thanks for nothing. The problem will be, I think, notably with jobs. We've already seen a bunch of jobs lost with the uh, advent of more advancement of technology and automation in a variety of different industries. But he's talking in pretty dire terms here. And talk about the value of AI, just how quickly it's growing. I had those numbers in front of me. Okay. A number of years ago, they said that artificial intelligence, this eight years ago, artificial intelligence would be worth more than $40 billion in the coming decade. And now here we are. The global artificial intelligence market size valued at $428 billion American dollars in 2022. The market is projected to grow from 515 515 billion US in 2023 the estimate for 2030 the value of artificial intelligence 2 trillion dollars so while many of us and I don't give this a whole lot of focus I've noodled around with a little bit just to see how it works and you know the big one that people are talking about is chat gpt but that's not the only platform out there with the artificial intelligence and Jeffrey Hinton says it won't be long before this automation that ai is smarter than human beings 
So job loss is right there in front of us. And so what do we do about it? It seems to me that the horse is out of the barn. Pandora's box has been opened. And certainly when we talk about capitalism and profits, companies that can afford to institute more artificial intelligence will. So consequently, their revenues will be driven way up because fewer people that they have to employ. Now, there will be people that need to be able to manage and to uh, work with the AI, AI systems themselves, but not near to the extent that human beings would be in those roles. So if you've been looking at it and thinking about it or talking about it or certainly maybe know a hot lo whole lot more than I do about it, please join us on the program today. But that one's pretty wild. The potential for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. Looks like PSAC and the workers represented uh, working for CRA have come to an agreement, a tentative deal. They're to report back to work no later than 1 o'clock island time today. Seems like very similar numbers that the Treasury Board negotiated with the PSAC members, 12.6% over the course of four years. Same sort of approach to remote work, similar approach to the issue regarding seniority. So all of the 155,000 workers are back to work. You want to take it on? Let's do it. How are we doing on the phone, Fonz? Let's get her going. So there are proposed amendments to the Memorial University Act that have been tabled. Now, not a whole lot to it. Student representatives on the Board of Regents and some different uh, language to be used. But the big ones will come on the heels of the Auditor General's review of finances and spending at Memorial University. That's an important one. The opposition is also talking about and asking for the to be reinstated the Ode to Newfoundland at convocation ceremonies. It's amazing what issues bring out the emotional feedback and pushback. When that was announced by then-President Vianne Timmons, people were really quite cross. You know, the justification was uh, is that it didn't mention Labrador, which is always amazing to me that when we're talking about inclusion, to exclude something just doesn't make sense, right? It's counterintuitive, to say the very least. So maybe we just add the O to Labrador with the O to Newfoundland, but certainly I think a lot of people have a big emotional reaction to that ballot and it does belong in the convocation ceremonies, as far as I can tell. So if you want to bring it forward, let's go. And a last one that kind of came out of nowhere. You know, governments have had a habit of wanting to label years, right? Remember back a few years ago, there was going to be a year of the cod. I don't think it ever came to pass. Then come home year. 2024, we're told yesterday after a special celebration at the rooms, that 2024 will be the year of the arts. Okay. Talking about $4 million in funding for artists to support their new work a bunch of exhibitions and opportunities, and the creation of a theater, building another theater. You know, Rick Mercer, the newly installed star on the Walk of Fame here in the country, says it's much needed. The LSPU is too small, the Arts and Culture Center is too big, so they need something to go down the middle regarding the number of seats for performance art. Okay, I wonder how this couple of things get factored in. John Steele is building a new theater adjacent to Jag Hotel. Tara Bruce is building a theater as well. So where does this new theater fit into the already work, the work already ongoing for those two separate theaters in addition to the LSPU Hall and the Arts and Culture Center? But 2024, Year of the Arts, what do you think? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're going to kick it off with Jason Spingle from the FFAW. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good to the Secretary-Treasurer at the FFAW Unifor. That's Jason Spingle. Jason, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How morning. are you this morning? Best kind. How about you? Well, you know, it's uh, I guess it's unprecedented that uh, we've had disputes in uh, in fisheries before, but this first, like uh, last Wednesday, was the first time we've had uh, three of our major fisheries come to a grinding halt, and the impacts on our economy and our people overall is 
it's really devastating. And I guess we're trying to work through this. Uh, but, uh, you know, the crab uh, issue, I, I, you know, I heard you mention that in your preamble, and I'd like to uh, discuss that or whatever else you'd like to discuss. But uh, first of all, the lobster, I guess, is uh, twice in a week, uh, or just over a week, we've had buyers halt, and the second stoppage, which was uh, yesterday as of today, was all buyers in the province, all lobster buyers. And as I know, many of those, some don't purchase or process crab, most do. But, uh, you know, I talked about uh, how irate harvesters would be in a competitive fishery where every day that's lost is one they're not going to get back. Uh, we have harvesters uh, in Hermitage and Ballorum right now uh, gathered uh, at the buying facilities to show their uh, their um, solidarity and their displeasure, you know, um, how uh, disappointed and upset they are that the buyers have done this in mid-season and done it twice in a week. So... All I know right now is that they're there showing uh, showing um, how important this is and how frustrated they are. Uh, I've talked to uh, some of our leaders down there. And uh, in any case, I guess to get to the issue on lobster, uh, you know, we have a formula in place for lobster. It's been in place for over a decade. And it basically helped settle the dispute we had at that time where it was just open and then one bar was paying uh, more than others, but more importantly, the prices compared to what the information we were getting. At, sorry about that. <laughs> Alarm on my other phone there. No uh, the um, harvesters uh, were getting in Nova Scotia were much, much lower. But the formula came in place. There's been some small variations to it uh, related to the deduction in the Erner Berry formula. Uh, but we've had 10 years of uh, this moving forward, no disruptions in the lobster fishery. We're seeing our lobster fishery. The other good news is, great news, is that uh, catches for lobster are increasing pretty much every year, and it's become a, a great uh, living for uh, most lobster harvesters, uh, You know, primarily on the south and west coast, but it's even increasing on the northeast coast. So the question would be, what is the difference this year that have caused the buyers to stop buying? Uh, if you look at the numbers, uh, there's no doubt about it that, that we're seeing decreased catches in southwest Nova and Maine, uh, so in, in the fall and winter fisheries. And, I mean, those those areas used to catch more, like southwest Nova used to catch more than all the rest of Canada combined. But the catches are decreasing, supply and demand issue. But we've had record prices. But it follows the market. Basically, it follows the market, and then the exchange rate is applied and we've had the top two record prices in the first two weeks. We start in mid-April, 14.37 for the week of the 15th, and for last week it was 10.42. This is great for harvesters, and they feel they're finally seeing the prices that they've heard tell of in Nova Scotia and these areas. Now, if there is a problem, if there is a problem with the formula, uh, or something has changed in the market, and you know, as a buyer's have alluded to me this is higher it's not falling like it did it's a higher price it's a problem for us as you know uh, with the uh, final offer selection process that the buyers have a reconsideration well they have two now as, as we do if things change so as opposed to uh, shutting down uh, why have the first question is why haven't they gone back for a reconsideration to show the panel that there's something majorly changed you know, that, that's the question I would have. And I still, you know, still haven't got any confirmation. And we put that out there to them, that that is your right to do so. And if there's something changed, I'm sure you're going to show it. You you would have to wonder 
you would have to wonder what's going on there. And as one young harvester said to a bar yesterday, and I mean, he's on the Northern Peninsula, they just started their fishery, you know, and he said to the bar, he said, well, uh, you know, you're almost talking like you're losing money. He said, if it's that bad, why don't you show your books? And the buyer said to him, well, we're getting ready to. Now, I'm not holding my breath on that, but look, um, if, if again, if the issue is that serious, they have the reconsideration option, and, uh, you know, and, and as the harvesters have said, we understand buyers have to make money too, but it's got to be fair. So, so all that said, are you just simply considering this retaliation for the snow crab issue? Well, if they, if they're not going if they're not going to go for a reconsideration, uh, that that certainly would cross you know that's crossing people's minds and it's crossing mine as well. Is this is this related to snow crab, which is totally disingenuous if that's the case. So um, and and there's not there's nothing else to say if they're not going to go for a reconsideration to point out why 2023 there's something else going on there the formula is not tracking like it did again for 10 years we've had. Uh, We've had uh, labor peace with positions that are talking about, you know, uh, a, a small reduction or on the, the earner Barry, they want a small deduction. We don't want it. We've had some variations there. That's in the, tw- you know, you would put you in the 20, 25 cent, maybe 30 cent range at most. Uh, you know, the panel accepted our position not to have the deductions. So, uh, like I say, so that's, that's, that's the only other thing you can look at. Okay. As, as, just on the lobster, the final point is this is, uh, again, I, I want to reiterate that unlike quota that's in the water, and I understand the pressure, I'm not downplaying in any way the pressure that's on people in the crab fishery from a number of different perspectives, but a lobster fishery, once it starts, that's it. The days are ticking away, and, uh, you know, gear that's unattended or or people having the, the whole lobsters and the stress with that, a storm could take them away. It uh, It's a different scenario and uh, you know the frustration is going to build there it is what it is in the meantime in the meantime i'm going to reiterate what i said last night on the on the uh, fisheries broadcast to you and your listeners is that no matter what no matter what the provincial government minister bragg needs to today uh say that he is going to allow out-of-province buyers for live lobster and or harvesters to be able to ship them out and uh, and as I repeat it, you know, under the same rules that Newfoundland buyers and prices have to pay, but uh, there's, 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 there's time to get this off the table here. This needs to be done today. We're hoping to hear from the government today that uh, they're going to be uh, having very short order. They're going to allow uh, buyers from wherever they are, Nova Scotia, PEI, I don't know, they might come from as far as Maine. I mean, this... The lobster industry goes uh, goes all the way there for sure, and if they want to come into Newfoundland, not only uh, will they uh, will you know what we will say, we will help facilitate to help them organize to where they know where to go to get lobster, and harvesters are willing to work with them as well. We know again, okay. live lobster is a very durable product. Uh, you know, you have to hold it for a couple of days to allow it to purge, and then uh, if it's handled, uh, you know, uh, the harvesters know how to handle that. We did it ourselves with great success, the bottom line. It can be moved, and we can uh, help facilitate that. 
and that will get that issue off the table. A couple and, of things. You know, okay, a couple of things, Jason. So I'll leave it at that for now. Okay, so if you want the processors to show the books, do you think the harvesters should as well? Because it's one thing to say you can't make money at two twenty a pound for snow crab, or you can't make money at whatever price for cod or halibut or anything else. So if you want the, pro- the processors to show the books, do you think the harvesters should as well? As in the air well, of transparency to get down to the brass tax here? Yeah, well, I, uh, you know, I don't think there's any issue with that. Most people would look at a harvester, would look, you know, people know the price of fuel, bait, uh, know what har- harvesters, har- most people know what harvesters have to catch. So it can pretty much, uh, you know, is, uh, but I would say yes in that context. Okay. And we put that out before. We did a we did a study before on shrimp, which put out there. We did, uh, we had an independent uh, accounting firm do a detailed study on what uh, what it costs to run enterprises for shrimp. Uh, but I think that's uh, the thing about it is, and I've always said it, you know, most people know what the quotas harvesters have and uh, what fuel is, what bait is, and uh, most people can come pretty close. But to answer your questions, I don't think harvesters would have any issue with okay. that. Right? So. In the snow crab world, and we all know now that there's been a letter written by Minister Bragg to the union talking about the potential for a secret ballot. And the question's simple. Are you a snow crab harvester ready and willing to go fishing now for a price that is currently set at 220 a pound? The union has responded and said pretty much no. It would undermine the leadership, might contravene the Fishing Industry Collective Bargaining Agreement Act. But we also all know that there's no such thing as 100% consensus on anything. But if you have a certain number, I don't know how many would be willing to go for 220, why not put it out there and see how many would go? Because you're rep- trying to represent everybody. Just imagine if it came back that 51% said, yes, I need to go for this snow crab, I can make it work. Why not figure it out? Because the solidarity is impressive, but there might be plenty of your members thinking, I wish we could just get on with it because I need to get out in the water. And I've received messages from the latter, certainly, uh, from uh, different different people, so that's a very fair question. You know, so for us, this is not a strike lockout situation. Uh, you know, so yes, we're looking at ways in which we can uh, ask the question. Um, uh, I guess so it doesn't contravene the, the Fishing Industry Collective Bargaining Act or any legal issues. Uh, we're looking at that right now, uh, but in the meantime, we have. Uh, uh, over 50 people that are elected uh, regional and fleet representatives, inshore council and crab chairs from all over the province. And uh, there's no doubt about it. There's, you know, there's some areas or some fleets where there's uh, more people that, that, that where arguably there's a split or more people want to go fishing. But the vast majority province-wide on those calls, and that's uh, I believe four we've had now, you know, uh, have said no. We, you know, we don't feel the 220 is fair. We feel there's more money there. We want ASP to come back with uh, something that's reasonable. Uh, you know, one of the issues was, uh, you know, and and I think anyone would say less than 220 is getting to a point where it's not viable for anyone. You know, what are we going to turn this wonderful product of snow crab into? You know, a reduced discount product. No one wants to do that. So, and I understand, everyone understands the market is what it is. So, right. okay. uh, all I can say is, is that the vast majority of our leadership in a formal process has said that, uh, not, not, not 100% for sure, but the vast majority up to this point have said that uh, they want to hold firm for now and, and uh, see, uh, because they believe there's more, there's a better offer there for the companies. And uh, what do they base that on? I really do. What do they base that assertion on? We're looking at every possible way 
to find a solution here, and uh, and we'll keep doing it until until we get one. You know. But if the market has softened it. since the uh, the season opened three weeks ago, and there's thought that it might soften even further. So when ASP has been pretty firm in their stance on this, and they wrote a letter to you on April 28th, said they'll guarantee 220 for another 21 days. To me, what that says is in 21 days, we're going to reapply for a, a further reduction in price. So I would imagine that has to factor in somehow in the harvester's mind and the mind of the leadership of the FFAW because if this extends beyond the 18th of this month and there is a reapplication for one set for 175 or whatever the number might be, then all is lost. So how do you factor that into the decision for a fleet-wide tie-up? And that 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 strength and harvester solidarity overall. That uh, basically, uh, 21 days. That's only going to give some people opportunity to get, you know, one trip in, and then the price is going to drop. And we said, well, so what's what's your plan here? Is it a reconsideration? I don't think there was an answer other than we're going to hold the price for 21 days. Well, the answer is pretty clear to me. After the 21 days, yeah, we'll be we'll be back at the panel. Funny enough, they won't go back for lobster though, even though they say that price is not fair. So. Uh, you know, the final point, I guess, from my perspective, Patty, is when it comes to snow crab, and the difference with lobster is the market is really good. Uh, like I said, I think uh, the, the, the supply is down in a, in a major area. No one wants to see that, but it's going to uh, catches are up overall. The uh, fishery remains excellent. Uh, the areas that a lot of the big areas, you know, the areas that catch the most lobster have started. It's a really good sign of lobster. This, this uh, resource looks great. It's the same thing for snow crab. But, uh, you know, we've, and as I've said to people, we're looking at a greater than 50%. The best case scenario looks right now. I hope the market will uh, improve, but uh, we're, we're dealing with a situation where we have people's incomes. Uh, the majority of harvesters in the province, their incomes are going to drop by over 50% in one year, uh, unless something miraculous happens. And I guess that's just part of the difficulty of this issue. And really, I, I, I don't think people expected the price of snow crab to stay up in the 6 to $7 range, but no one expected it, and no one has yet to disagree with me. No one expected it to drop where it is now. Okay. And uh, that's, you know, that's just, it's just, it's going to be a very, very difficult situation for many, many people. And people can say, oh, it's, you know, we, uh, we take our chances. But uh, I, I, I'll go back to say this is an economic crisis and both levels of government need to help out here, right? And it's happened in other industries. So, What leads you to believe outside buyers would pay much more than, say, the 220 Because if they're buying it for in and around 225 uh, Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, who do you think are the outside buyers that would be willing to pay more, given what the market looks like today? Well, all I can say is this. If the buyers are, if outside buyers are allowed to come in uh, and they come in, or they don't come in, we'll find out for sure. That's all I can say. Again, I know everyone wants to see every pound of product landed and processed in this province and every job in this province, but uh, this is an issue now, and uh, I think the government started, you know, is, is clear on it now. Lobster is the first one they can start with. Uh, some some buyers have said to me before, yep, yeah, well, uh, you know, let, let the buyers come in as long as they got to play the, by the same rules I got to play by. I don't think you'll see anyone. But let's let's uh, let's start here with lobster. Let's start now, and if uh, we'll see what happens, and then uh, maybe we can move on to to find other solutions. If that's not the case, I do believe that there are buyers that would come in. And again, I'll say to every buyer that's out there that's listening, outside the province, that we uh, if you want to come in, we'll help coordinate in any way. Um, 
Has a buyer come to the FFAW and said, if you can make it work, I can come in at three bucks? Has anyone even made any sort of formal pitch here to further this conversation? I have not. I mean, we just, I guess this has just been formalized yesterday in that sense now with this second tie up. I mean, we had a press release, but I haven't heard from anyone. But, uh, but you know, harvesters are going to be reaching out. We have a lot of harvesters that know people in Nova Scotia and, and these places and harvesters that even fish over there as crew members. So I expect we will here in the short term, but I haven't heard of anyone yet as of this morning knowing okay. that this is uh, just less than 24 hours old now in the sense of this, uh, this second tie-up here and, uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, I understand. I want to get through a couple of very quick ones. So has anything changed? But there's always going to be some conflict between the inshore and the offshore. Has there been some sort of deal struck in the recent past that means that the inshore harvesters are going to be able to catch the majority of their quota first before the full-time offshore crowd go at their quota? Uh, every All of our leadership understand that everyone has to have a fair opportunity. No, but has that happened? Uh there's, there's no f- uh, formal plan other than the issue has been acknowledged and agreed by the leadership that everyone needs an opportunity to uh, to catch, uh, you know, to have fair access to land crab when it, when it does open. I appreciate know. the time this morning, Jason. Thank you. Patty, thank you as always, uh, and uh, we'll keep you updated. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Uh, Jason Spingle, Secretary Treasurer at the FFAW. Certainly lots to it, but, of course, fishery. Front of mind for many, but there's so many issues that we can discuss. Let's do it right after this break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. And welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Sid, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hiya, Sid. Uh, I got a few things uh, interrupting about this uh, fishing industry. Sure. Go ahead. The first thing is uh, I don't understand... Well, we got a union that's representing fishing companies. Every fishing enterprise is a company. So we got a union that's going with fishing companies against all the employees. Uh, who represents the crew members on the board? The FFAW. Whatever the uh, owner of them companies says goes. The, the crew members got no say in, in, in nothing. You got no one that ever sent them. Their wages, their working conditions, or nothing else. Every every enterprise, or that's a company. Just like the processing companies and every other company. Now, uh, in 2020, the price started at 290 a pound for crab. In 2021, it went up to 760 That's a 262% increase in wages for the fish harvesters. And when it comes to the lobsters, standing price right now, market price, is $14.09, and the fishman's price is ten forty-two. That's That's the prices now. So there's not much room for anybody to buy and sell anything if these high prices remain. The fishermen also got uh, increase in their crab quota every year, making their profit even more. Yeah, quota increase this year about eight point four percent over last year's total allowable catch. 
So just let me pick your brain a little further on how the union represents the different workers. You know, for starters, they also represent plant workers, which has never been a really sensible thing to me. Uh, but secondly, you're, you're, the mention of an enterprise owner being represented, and they have all the say in how their business works. Uh, I think you just dropped, was that you, Fonz? Something got clicked. Uh, so get, him, get him back because I want to talk about that. So the suggestion that the crew members don't have the representation or a voice in this issue because... The enterprise owners will indeed get to call the shots for how they operate, how much they fish for, uh, the ability to tie up, and consequently the crew are possibly on the outside looking in thinking, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I need to get paid. I need some more uh, money coming in the door here. So there's, I think that's an interesting point that he makes, but how would you rejig union representation to include a bigger voice for the crew member? Oh, is that Sid back? Sid, I don't know what yeah. happened, but welcome back to the show. So here's the fundamental question. How do you reshape the union to deal with the concern that you just uh, put forward here? Is that the enterprise owners are being represented, but no one's speaking for the crew members who are probably willing to go at it? That's that's right. I mean, the, the, the enterprises is companies. Uh, and we got a union that's representing companies and not representing the, the plant workers and, and everybody else that work in the fishing industry, the crew members, the, the offshore loaders, the, the, the people that's working in the plants and everybody else. I mean, this, this union is totally con uh, in conflict of interest against one party or the other. They're with the fishing companies, but they're not with the workers that's working onshore in, in the fishing industry. So does that mean in your head that there's a need for a second union inside the industry? Because I don't know how you could reshape at the FFAW to accommodate the issues that you're talking about here. So I hadn't really thought about it very much on that front because enterprise owners not only have representation at the FFAW, but also this newly created CNL, which represents only enterprise owners. So obviously there's going to be... A one size, there can't be one size fits all here when we have plant workers, inshore, offshore, enterprise owners, crew, because that's a lot of moving parts to try to satisfy under one umbrella. That, that's exactly right. The, the, uh, I mean, the enterprises, enterprising companies, because they're companies. Uh, yeah. if, if they want their own union, let, let them have their own union. But the reason why that the, uh, the brought all the plant, uh, all the union into one, the fishing union and the, the plant workers and everybody, is so that uh, back in the 70s, the fishermen never had enough uh, support, so they brought everybody into the one union, so to give the fishermen uh, more support and power. Interesting. Yeah, now every now and then I hear from some people who are absolutely crew members as opposed to uh, skippers or enterprise owners, and you've got to imagine that, th of course, they'd like to get maximum value for the raw material, especially since that kind of uh, relates directly to how much they get paid in the run of a season. But they don't have that large investment in place. They don't have to worry about paying off the loan to buy a million-dollar vessel or a million-dollar enterprise. So I would imagine that they possibly very quietly, because it has been extremely contentious, uh, you know, even on some of the Facebook forum pages, when people are talking about, I want to go at it, and then being warned that that's going to end badly for you, that kind of stuff. So you're probably right on the money here, that the crew are ready to go, and who's representing them? Fair question. Now, uh, uh, I like a lot of these fishing companies, uh, their crew members got to buy bait. Some of them got to buy the fuel. 
is, 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 uh, and if they complain about it, they get no one to back them up. I mean, uh, the the boat uh, the, the the boat owners are saying, "Well, you buy the fuel, you buy the bait." They get come over with the crew members' checks. Sure. So, uh, and, and and then there's this situation where, uh, for the last at least the last two years, uh, with the outrageous price that blocked the market, the market is blocked. Uh, no government can uh, uh, do anything about the market. Market goes on supply and demand. If you've got a uh, large supply with a with a high price, nobody's going to buy. Uh, then you got the the, the fishermen, the the the, the horners, uh, shipping uh, crab in, in uh, other people's names. They sign the check and pass back to the uh, to the fishing company. And uh, that's uh, fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars cash money again in your pocket. Yep. I mean, uh, uh, we definitely need uh, uh, two different unions, and uh, I think Greg Pretty is, is uh, should resign. He's not doing a very good job. The most he's doing is putting out propaganda and uh, lies. Uh, who should resign? You say Greg Pretty? Yes, the president. Yeah, and of course he's just been in the role for a very short time. Uh, okay, is there any other example of propaganda or lies that you'd like to make reference to before I have to move off? Well, for one, is he includes the offshore fisheries with the inshore fishermen. Anyone that's out there 100, 150 miles, that's not inshore. That's not inshore fishermen. Inshore fishermen is the ones that's in here with the with the low uh, crab quarter, nine, ten thousand pound uh, quarter. That's a henshore fisherman, someone that only goes 10, 15, 20 kilometers offshore. Uh, and uh, then they don't tell the truth about the market price. They're not telling the truth about the market price. The market, market price right now for the crab is 14.09, while the fisherman is getting their price 14, uh, 10.42. So how could uh, anyone else? You're talking about lobster now, right? Yes. Yeah, not crab. Yeah, crab Bobby. market is about four sixty-five American. Yes, and and the fishman was seven sixty a pound, uh, and the market is uh, not even up to that much. I appreciate the time this morning. Uh, anything else you want to say before we have to move off? Sit to a break. Uh, no, I'll let you go, and uh, you have a good day. The same to you. Thanks for the call. Okay, thanks. All right, take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Melissa. You're on the air. Melissa, good morning. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good. Uh, just calling in uh, about the seals on Chamberlain's Beach. Uh, we, uh, our neighborhood group started seeing some seals wash up. Uh, first, it was just low numbers, and then yesterday, by the time I got home from work, the, the rumor was that it was about 30. So my son and I went down, and he walked the area from Chamberlain's Beach to Worsley, and it uh, was more like about 50. But the, you know, I'm not surprised to see some marine mammals washing up now that the, the ice has moved out. We did have a lot of pack ice that uh, was really tough on marine mammals this year. But what was interesting was they had absolutely no head. 95% had no head. Um, and we're not talking about, you know, damage to the head. It was just 
fully gone. So uh, we came home and started Googling to see if we could find out why they had no head. And, you know, I was talking to a couple of neighbors and they mentioned, you know, orcas and stuff, but we couldn't see why they would just not eat the whole seal. I mean, I've seen some of the pictures, and we'll get into who should be cleaning it up now in a minute. But it is quite strange, and it's not just on Chamberlain Beach that we're seeing this, and not no, only seals. I, I had a, I'm sorry, go a ahead. Hockey mom, once I posted pictures, a hockey mom uh, down in uh, Chapels Cove said they had 23 and a walrus wash up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and it's happening all over from, you know, I po- once you make a post, everybody starts commenting, and, yes, yeah, it's, it's happening all over. And I'm, I have no doubt that it's the animals were probably victims of all the, the pack ice we had this year. Uh, we've seen all the, you know, the poor trapped dolphins and porpoises around, um, and no doubt smaller mammals were affected as well. So when I got home and Googled, apparently because a seal's um, – head and skull is so heavy and their neck is so weak that this is a common uh, natural phenomenon that happens when when a seal carcass is rolling around the ocean and through the surf and through the ice and uh, it's happened in Cape Breton it's happened in the UK it's happened in Ireland Um, it's just I I guess the amount of ice and the amount of mammals that were around we we got large numbers it's it's really quite something, and people are thankfully are sending me pictures to let me know what's going on, where they live, and I guess the next big question will be, what what do we do about it? Because remember, in years past, when the whales would beach and be dead, and then there was all sorts of finger pointing about who where the responsibility lied for cleanup. But before long, this has to be attended to. I mean, whether it be with animals or dogs that are out on the beach, or uh, parents with their children going for a walk, we've got to get rid of this before before too long. It's going to be rancid and stinky, and becomes much more complicated cleanup. Exactly, and uh, I live, our house is probably four or five houses up from the ocean, but I was talking to some of the neighbors that live right on the beach yesterday, and uh, one of them in particular who's closest to the largest amount, he had called DFO, he called a whole bunch, the town, uh, the town were down and and kind of assessed the situation according to him, but um, nobody really knows who's responsible for cleaning this up, and according to him, DFA said it wasn't them. Um, but I mean, it's, it's kind of no different than roadkill. Somebody has to pick it up. That's long been the issue with uh, on the beach. You know, same thing when we talked about an oil leak from the Manola cell. It was the province's responsibility when it was on the water, when it got to shore. There was some uh, concerns about who would be responsible for cleaning up. And then, you know, eventually the federal government hired someone to go to, hired a company to go down and plug it once and for all. But there's where someone should be able to figure this out. Okay, so there's a high tide water mark and there's uh, protected areas on the shore, certainly on the seashore. But... That's no value to anyone walking the beach in Chamberlain's. People just need to know that when this happens and the authorities are alerted, that someone will come up and clean it up, whether it be a cost share between the municipality and the province or whoever. We can't have the argument go on for too long before it becomes a bigger problem than it already is. Well, and I'm sure that the neighborhood would get involved if there was some kind of organized way to do it. But, I mean, the problem is now those those animals have just washed out of the water, and we've had a pretty high surf out here the last couple of weeks um so i'm not surprised to see stuff washing up but right now they don't smell because they just came out of the water and they're probably partially frozen right yeah. um but like in a day or so that's going to start i'd say i'll be smelling it up to my house in, in two days and they need, they need to get on it fast before actual issues arise
Yeah, because you know there other might than be non-sightliness, right? Absolutely, you might have some curious uh, dogs or other animals. You might have some curious children that might get in close contact with them, and there's some problems associated with that. So we'll follow up with the province and the federal government about who's going to clean this up because it's not just on Chamberlain's Beach, which I imagine is probably a pretty busy spot. Yeah, it's between Morsley Park where, where the uh, Manuals River Trail bottoms out and uh, the soccer field. So that, that yeah. stretch, right? So it is a, a commonly used area. Lots of people are walking their dogs. I, as soon as I heard about it, I left my dog at home because, you know, I have a big bird dog. And he would totally been all over that in a non-positive way. <laughs> yeah, it's all pretty and, gross. Uh, you know, but, yeah, it's, and, like, the largest portion is actually behind the playground, which is... There's a playground on uh, Wintergreen that's basically right on the ocean. Yeah, I can picture and the it. The largest amount happens to be right, you know, almost immediately behind the playground. So it's not something I'd want little kids seeing. I mean, my son is a teenager, and he's the one who went down and walked the beach and counted. But I wouldn't want little kids coming up on this because it is quite it's sad and it's devastating, and it could also be a little bit traumatic for a young child. I appreciate the time this morning, Melissa. Thanks for doing this. All right, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too. Uh, yeah, let's see. Now, whatever level of government, whoever's going to be ultimately responsible by the time we finger, uh, finish the finger pointing, let's get that stuff cleaned up. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. You're listening to the VOCM Big Land FM Radio Network. Stingray Radio Stations. Local News Now. A VOCM News Update. This news is presented by Rogers Rogers Moist Lawyers. They stand for you. Call 722-3777. Rogers Rogers Moist. Good morning, I'm Jolene Grimes. The lobster fishery has come to a screeching halt after buyers stopped purchasing product from harvesters. It's a second closure in the fishery in a week, according to FFAW Secretary-Treasurer Jason Spingle. The first uh, closure... We got through it. The buyers started buying again last week, but now we've got uh, hundreds uh, of irate harvesters that can't sell their product. And, um, you know, uh, there's uh, definitely provincial government needs to step in here, that's for sure. Lobster fishery has grown tremendously in recent years, and the current price is set at $10.42 a pound. The union wants immediate action to amend legislation allowing harvesters to sell their product outside the province. The house is in session today. And that they got to stay in overnight to get the amendment done to the uh, regulations that will allow buyers from outside of this province, whether they're from Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or, or Maine or wherever they want to come, as long as they've got a valid license and they're willing to buy at the prices that are under jurisdiction here, come in and buy harvesters lobsters. The opposition grilled government and legislature yesterday on Greek and L's decision to ship farmed salmon to Beta Verde for processing this fall, bypassing the unionized plant in nearby St. Lawrence. Greek announced April 18th that it had entered into an agreement with Quinlan Brothers to process farmed salmon, immediately raising the ear of the FFAW, who accused the company of rolling back the clock on labor relations. Union called on government for harsher regulation of processing companies. Opposition leader David Brazel questioned Premier. Andrew Fury about the blow to workers in St. Lawrence. This announcement came as a shock to the region. The people of St. Lawrence feel deceived and are demanding answers. Premier, what are you going to do about this situation? 
The Honourable the Premier. Of course, we incredibly value the agricultural industry and the aquaculture industry, sorry, in the, in the province, Mr. Speaker. We'll continue to work with that region to ensure they're supported. This was a decision between two businesses, Mr. Speaker. Uh, we don't have a role to play with respect to that business decision, Mr. Speaker. We will be there to support the people of St. Lawrence, Mr. Speaker. Fuel prices have decreased across the board today. Gas is down by nearly one cent a litre. Diesel drops by five cents on the island and about the same in Labrador. Furnace oil decreased by 4.35 cents. Stove oil on the island fell by the same as stove oil in Labrador West is down by about four cents a litre. Propane saw little change going down by just a little over half a cent. The provincial government is moving on to the next steps of establishing a province-wide ambulance service. The move to consolidate 60 separate road ambulance services was first announced in the 2023 budget with $9 million set aside for the process. Three separate requests for proposals have been issued for consultants as part of the next phase of that process. RFPs have also been issued for technical, fairness and helicopter emergency medical service planning advisors who will help guide the process in the future. As well, the department is also retaining advisors to help develop service requirements for the new system. Submissions for the RFPs are due at the end of the month. Government anticipates the contracts for consultants being awarded over the summer and recommendations from the technical and helicopter emergency medical service planning advisors to be received later this year. Up next, your VLCM weather forecast. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line three. Mildred, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. How are you? Doing very well, thanks. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Uh, I'm here on the wharf in Hermitage with uh, 40 or 50 Lobster harvesters, uh, they get the wharf blocked off. Uh, a few worried, discontented, frustrated people, to be truthful with you. What are you hearing? Well, I'm hearing that, you know, the harvesters fully believe this is retaliation for the crab. You know, and they're being held hostage. They got, uh, you know, they're, all they want to be doing is be on the water, catch a few lobsters and get paid a decent price. Basically, that's it. But uh, the buyers don't see it that way. Has anybody spoken directly with someone working for the buyer, you know, the processing companies? Because Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, go ahead. The, the, the people that I know, you know, uh, well, I, I'm a, um, a field tech now, so I go in the boats with harvesters collecting lobster information, that kind of thing. And, you know, so I hear them talking all the time, and they're talking to their buyers, you know, and, and what the buyers are telling them is, oh, the markets are crashing, we can't afford to pay uh this kind of thing and they know better you know they know better and and this has been going on for a lifetime you know i used to be an harvester i fished with my husband for well this is my 34th year on the water and uh you know as long as i can remember there's always been issues between the buyers and the harvesters and you know we put a great formula in place way back when i was part of that process you know going around the province trying to help out and uh and it's been working you know, but as soon as the price goes up in the market, it seems like the buyers kind of don't want that. So now they got to shut down because they're not making money. And, you know, and if they're not making money, well, they should have went back, you know, and, and went for a reconsideration and said, well, we're not making money and went through that process. But instead of that, they're tying up, you know, the harvesters are not on the water this morning and the lobster crates are all sitting down in in the water there as I'm looking there in the harbor in Hermitage, all the crates are all in the water. Um, 
OCI's truck is on the wharf, you know, ready to pick them up, but they didn't bring any bait and they didn't bring any crates for future. So, you know, the boys said enough is enough. So they're, uh, they're tying up the wharf this morning. That's the same assertion made by Jason Spingle at the FFAW, is that if the processors haven't gone back for reconsideration on price, that that gives people reason to believe that this is some form of retaliation. Now, I'll leave it up to anyone to offer their opinion on that, but you would think that if it's a money issue, well, there's a process to address a money issue. Absolutely. There's no ancestor or buts. And, and, like, you know, it's no difference, like I said to you, it's no difference this morning and what it was 20-odd years ago. And I can remember my husband, you know, he was a fisherman from Sagona Highland, and he said, you know, the merchants back in the day, he said, uh, the fishermen on Sagona Highland could never understand why uh, a, a, a dory load of fish on Pass Island was worth more than a dory load of fish on Sagona Island. And, you know, that's what fishermen see most times. And all they want to do is, you know, work with the, the companies, go out, fish, and bring in their product, get it off to the market, and everybody's happy and, and prosperous, hopefully. But that's not the way it is. We're open. Something's going to give today. You know, some of the harvesters have been in touch with their uh, MHA, Helvis Loveless, you know, uh, Cooks, Aqua people, you know, they're, they're supporting us. They're understanding what's going on here they want to get back to work and get everything going but uh so now it's up to the premier uh minister bragg and the government to try to see what they can do to fix this issue what do you think they should do well one thing they should do is you know say to the companies buy the system is in place we know the market can take uh the product that's being uh brought in uh, so get back to work and pay the harvesters and get the product moving. Yeah, I'm just always curious as to what people government think uh, government should do regarding price because if it's, you know, encouraging a secret ballot on a snow crab, if it's encouraging both sides get back to the table, if it's encouraging a restructuring of the price panel, but for this season at that price, and I think the last uh, price paid was ten forty two a pound on lobster, if we're yeah. talking about more money, if it's not something that the market is willing to bear, then are we talking about government actually subsidizing price per pound? No. Well, the thing about it is, like, the market can take this. That formula was made uh, to show what was happening in the marketplace. And there's no doubt about it. it you know, it can be paid. And uh, if it couldn't be paid, uh, those companies uh, would be going back and saying, like, we can't deal with this, this formula's not working, let's sit down to the table, let's fix this so it works for everybody. But there's no doubt about it, the companies just don't want to move, and uh, the fishermen and the old communities, actually, you know what I mean? There's a lot of people caught in the crossfire here. So it's time that the government steps in and, you know, and start getting two parties to the table and see if we can get back to business. Fair enough. I uh, just want to ask you one more question, Mildred. You know, yeah. the concept of uh, allowing outside buyers to come in and the whole thought that that might lead to uh, some competitive bidding, like an auction style to buy the product, similar to what we do, say, for instance, when we send a tuna uh, to Asia. But how do we also protect the processing sector? Because the harvesters want what they want, and no one begrudges them that. I want to make as much as I can in my private enterprise. But if we do an outside buy buyer concept two questions why do we think they'd be willing to pay any more than the processors locally are willing to pay and secondly what happens if all of a sudden we've dismantled uh, a part or a lot of the processing sector because someone from brazil bidding against someone from japan from the united states or from greenland or wherever the case may be and all of a sudden our processors where they're with their built-in overhead might indeed be on the outside looking in and consequently 
hundreds or thousands of people working in the processing plants might be out of a job. So how do we do both at the same time? Well, I don't know how we do both at the same time. There's somebody more higher up than me can answer that question. But what I can say to you is there's nobody in the fishing boats who wants to make it hard for the plant workers. We're all in this together. Yeah. Okay. You know, we're all in this together. Uh, but if it takes right now in the season, right this today, where harvesters got lobsters in crates in the water, they can't move them, they can't go fishing, we need to look at something. If that includes open the province opening up for outside buyers to come in this season, well, let's do it. Appreciate the time this morning, Mildred. Thank you. Not problem. Take Bye. good care. Bye-bye. Let's keep going. Uh, line number two, perspective coming from Ken on the lobster fishery. Go ahead, Ken. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind, sir. How about yourself? Uh, well, it's been better. Been a little bit under the weather with the flu and everything, but uh, that's nothing compared to this lobster racket that we're involved with now. I'm a fisherman from Harbour Grace. I spoke to you once last year. I was here tied onto the wharf. Wanted to go out and haul uh, gillnets. But the companies were telling me, no, you can't go today. We, you got to wait till tomorrow or next day or something. So I'm really sick and tired of the companies and the power that they got. Where they got the power, I don't know. They can tell you when you can go, when you can't go. So and that's in I reference to the... Funny, I think it's very funny today that uh, all the lobster buyers right across the island all said at the same time, no, we're not buying no more lobsters. Who is running all the fish plants? There's one company running that, and they're dictating everything. And they're doing the same with the crab. And I can tell you, this is my opinion, that is Royal Greenland. And it was Steve Crocker and the Fury government, or not the Fury government, the Ball government at the time, I guess, allowed them to come in here and take over down Beatty River down there, <clears throat> or Old Perlican. And ever since they come here, they've been, I know there's lots of trouble in the fishery before, but now they're here, there's going to be nothing only worse, worse, worse every year. I'll just give a little bit of history. Okay. Royal Greenland. <clears throat> well, I fished for him for 35 years now on offshore draggers. We land in Greenland lots of times. I sail with Danish skippers. I sail with Greenland skippers. And all the ever said about Royal Greenland was they're that big, they're that powerful, they can take a large amount of product. That means millions and millions of tons of shrimp and store it. And they'll keep it at a low, they'll buy it at a low price, keep it. And dump it all on the market when the demand goes high and the price goes up. And that's what they wants to do here with the crab. They couldn't do it last year. They got burned last year because they had to pay a high price. That will never happen again. They want crab for two twenty a pound now, and then they'll wait for the price to go up like it was last year and dump it on the market. Now, that's my opinion. Nope. And if the, if the provincial government got the power to give them a processing license, they should have the power to take it away from them. Take it away from them and bring in somebody different. But wasn't the case last year that the market actually softened on crab? What do you say? The market softened on crab last year. Uh, and I think the last couple of years have sort of been a bit of an anomaly for the appetite for crab. But at the beginning of the season, they got almost 8 bucks and went all the way down to six fifteen. So, And the, the processors didn't even sell all the crab that they bought off the harvester. So I'm not, sh I'm not sure the last two years are really good uh, case for what the market's going to look like in the future. How about you? Well, uh, if they say they got stuff in the market in the stories that they can't sell, show us the pictures of it. Show us the, go in the cold stories. You can show pictures of everybody else on social media. Go in the cold stories and show us one that's full of the crab now somewhere. Fair enough. The issue regarding Royal Greenland, and you mentioned the Beta Bird operation, of course, they bought it from the Quinlan's, Quinlan Brothers. Quinlan Brothers continue to manage and operate the plant. 
But the question that was always being asked about foreign concentration is, at what point is it too much? Because that, that issue regarding Royal Greenland has been a bugaboo for a lot of folks here, whether it be harvesters, processors, or just people who are looking at the economy and where the money actually goes. And whether or not Royal Greenland would be more likely to buy a product in their own home country versus buy product here. So there's big questions to be asked. But the province has never been able to tell me, when I've asked them repeatedly, at what point are we not going to allow any more foreign ownership inside this industry in particular? And they don't have an answer, which is bizarre. Well, there I just emailed uh, Steve Cracker yesterday. Well, when I was on the, well, I still am on the shrimp boat, but uh, during that life old scenario, I lost forty thousand dollars of a year income over that life old scenario. They wanted to drive the foreigners out at the same time they let Greenland in here to buy the stuff, damn stuff. Yeah, that last and first out policy, which thankfully went by the wayside, but that was the federal government, right? It was the federal government? That came out of nowhere. Steve was the first one in there up. Uh, to have something to say that him and the, the provincial government they, they were all for it they were all three parties and they were for, for the to kick the foreigners out whatever foreigners they're talking about I don't know who they are I don't know none of them I know most everyone was out there I would say in the last 35 years but anyway that's all I had to say I'd like to see uh, the government now bring in the, the fifth estate or W5 and go down there and dig up what dirt is going on down there down shore down there because I can guarantee you that that's the problem with all the fishermen in Newfoundland today is what's going on down here in Royal Greenland. Their name is not on the sign down there nowhere, probably, but they're, they're in the background, and they're running the whole show here on this island now. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, I, I mean, be any good. I don't know how willing a operator of another plant would be to simply say, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, to Royal Greenland, because they have a, a particular position, and I don't know what leverage they would have over another processor. Can you... Maybe take that a step further for me? Well, I don't know. They got that took over down there. <clears throat> and whatever they say is what uh, Quinlan's or Quincy got to do. They got the money. They got the power. And that's all they might need is the power. They take over every other plant. Because if they don't, all the small fellas, I don't know, no small ones, but some small plants past the island probably be had to shut down because they're going to force them out of it. Same thing they're going to do with small boat fishermen. They're going to force us out of it. Appreciate the time this morning. Appreciate yours. So Th- thank you very thanks, much. Thanks, Ken. All the best. All right, bye bye. Right. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, of course, the fishery is going to be a major concern for many, given the emotional, contentious standoff that we have going on, whether it be with crab or lobster. But of course, there's so many different issues we can talk about. Let's do it right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go. Lionel Royal, say good morning to the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Cleary. Ryan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. You and your listeners. Thank you for taking the call, sir. My pleasure. Patty, I'm calling in about the crisis in the commercial fisheries. Um, it is a crisis. It's a tinderbox, too. Nerves are afraid like I haven't seen in decades, not since 92 with the Northern Cod Moratorium. You've got to tie up with crab for a month now. You've got processors, as Jason Spingle said this morning, not buying lobster again. You've got shrimp, uh, shrimp fishermen threatening again, not to, threatening again to land in Nova Scotia. Crab, lobster, shrimp, this province has three largest fisheries. Frustration is building, there's no doubt. The first thing I'd like to say, Patty, is I'd like to comment on the letter in the media from Derek Bragg, the Provincial Minister of Fisheries, to the FFAW. And Jason Spinkle mentioned it this morning. In that letter, the minister said he wanted the union to hold a secret ballot for fishermen to vote on the 220. So first off, Patty, under the final offer selection system of fish pricing in this province, I know you know this, the legislation is governed by the provincial government. 
the decision, any decision by the pricing panel on a particular species, in this case 220, is binding. That means there is no vote. When a price is agreed to, it is, a, it is binding on all parties, supposedly, not necessarily in some cases. So I agree with the FFAW on this point, that Minister Bragg doesn't seem to know his own legislation, and that is not helpful. What I will say about a vote is that every single inshore enterprise owner in this province, not all fishermen, Patty, just license holders, they should be able to vote on a, on a fish price. The fish price is their collective agreement. The technology exists to vote online. Small boat owner operators vote electronically in other provinces like Nova Scotia. Patty, imagine telling members of NAEP or CUPE that they can't vote on a collective agreement. Why should owner-operators be treated any less, be treated like second-class workers? That's my first point. Uh, I'm a little bit confused, and I'm, no one's been able to point to me exactly how this contravenes the Fishing Industry Collective Bargaining Agreement Act because we're not asking individual harvesters to get involved, or enterprise owners, or anybody to get involved in manipulating the price. It's just whether or not they'd be willing to go for the price that's currently been set through the process, as flawed as it is, at 220 pound. I'm, I suppose, but, you know, I'm on the outside looking in, right? I don't have any skin in the game necessarily, but it really feels to me that the standoff and the FAW position at this moment of time to tie up is in an effort to see sea changes, major amendments to the Collective Bargaining Act, major changes to how harvesters are allowed to operate, whether that be with uh, trip limits or whether it be with uh, how the processing sector works and the opportunity for an auction style on the wharf. There's something more to it than simply standoff on 220 pounds, given the market reality. You're absolutely right, Patty. And I mentioned to you on this on the show before, the province conducted a three-month review last summer of the fish price setting system after the crisis last year, where fishermen either couldn't fish, wouldn't fish, or processors wouldn't buy. Now, that three-month review, it was lightning fast. It didn't hold a single meeting with owner-operators, and it obviously did not do the job. It was a token attempt by the government to make it seem like they were doing something. And now, again, this year, you got the three largest commercial fisheries all in chaos uh, this season. T two of them were also in chaos uh, last year for two years in a row. And, and by the way, the FFAW signed off on that review last, last year. My, my point, Patty, is this. The review that was held last year needs to be held again. You need to start from scratch. You need to do it right this time. Speaking to everyone, leave no stone un unturned. Look at outside buyers, which that review last year didn't look at. Look at electronic auctions. Everything must be on that table. The review last year was just for show. It was window dressing to make it seem like government was doing something. It did nothing. They need to start from scratch. In terms of the vote, the legislation as it stands right now says the price set by the panel is binding. There is no vote. But my whole point is with review of the legislation, there should be votes. Owner-operators should be allowed to vote on the price of a fish. It's their collective agreement. And again, I'll stress this again. Imagine tell telling members of NAEP or CUPE they cannot vote on their collective agreements. Uh, it, it's just ridiculous. The, it, it is so – this fish price-setting system that we have in this province is an abomination of the free market system, and it is desperate for a, an overall review of, of, the, of, the, of the way the entire system works.
in, in terms of outside buyers, Patty, now I'm all over outside buyers. I'm all over a free market. We want our owner-operators to get the best possible price for their fish, and that's the only way to do it. But I can't see, own, see owner-operators working this year. Local buyers, they supply the bait. They supply the ice. If you don't sell them one species, they may not buy another. So a one-off on outside buyers isn't going to do anything. From my perspective, here's what needs to happen. The House of Assembly needs – it's already – I think it's in session. It needs to have, they have an, they need an emergency debate on what's going on right now in the fisheries. They need to take a look at the existing system we have right now, final offer selection. Now, the way that works with, the, with final offer selection is the government-appointed panel. If the FFAW and ASP can't agree to a price, it goes to the panel. The panel chooses one price or another. It can't go any, it can't go in the middle. Now, when the panel set the price of fish at 220 on, on April the 6th, it said that the correct price, the correct part price, Patty, was somewhere between 2, 220 and 310. So if we don't have the, connect, the correct price, we have the wrong price. The, legisl- the, the legislature needs to debate changing the legislation immediately to allow the panel for this year to choose a middle price. That's what CNL is proposing to the provincial government. This, this tie-up needs to end. Uh, the market prices, um, I saw the latest market prices yesterday, or I heard the latest market prices uh, this week. Um, they don't seem to be down. They're not up. They, that's a good thing. But I don't, see, I don't see any indication that they're going to go up or down anytime soon. So from my perspective, the panel, the legislation has to change. So the panel, if it chooses to, can choose a middle price. We need this fleet to be up and running. We need our commercial fisheries up and running. I think you also make it a little bit more palpable if you had uh, regarding what percentage the harvesters and the processors get or the market price, because that would go a long way to so-called transparency here. Because if the harvesters got somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% of the market price last year, down to somewhere in the neighborhood of 28% this year, that creates a huge disparity. So if the market bears what the market bears, I think that's getting lost in this conversation. The market is what it is. And the market doesn't, couldn't care less about Newfoundland harvesters or processors. So if there was a consistent, you know, based on whatever metrics you want to put in place here, about uh, increased operating costs for harvesters and processors alike, if the market share was very, very similar year over year, it would really take the steam out of some of the arguments that both sides are, pl- are making. Patty, the panelists said time after time with decision after decision that, uh, that processors and buyers must show sales receipts. So we know that the, the, the inshore fleet owner-operators are getting a fair market share. The problem is, Patty, that the process, processors won't show those sales receipts and the province won't make them do it. So you have a system, final offer selection, that nobody trusts. So the, from my perspective, the only way to bring in trust is, have an, is to have an absolute transparent and open market system. Now, we can't move to an electronic auction system this year. It's not quick enough. To bring in outside buyers, you need to have the problems that I've already outlined. But we, do, we need movement on this crisis right now. The province needs to uh, – the House of Assembly needs to debate changing the legislation to allow the panel to pick a middle, middle price. Appreciate the time this morning, Ryan. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I, I do think that 
the issues regarding market share, what percentage of the uh, market price goes to harvesters and the processors, I think that takes away a lot of the frustrations here because I don't think anyone in the sector on this little island can do much about what the market in the United States and the white tablecloth is willing to pay or what the Japanese are willing to pay or any, anybody else here. So if we had a bit more consistency on that front, and, you know, it's such a volatile I industry anyway. You know, the hangover from the enormous wealth created by the landed value of crab last year, you know, when the sticker shock becomes what it is this year, then, of course, people are going to be frustrated. And we've seen the result. Anyway, let's take a break. When we come back, Nancy Brace wants to talk about local service districts. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Hi there. How are you? We're doing well, thanks. How about you? Good. Good. I just got a couple of little things I want to just touch on today. Um, one is, you know, the announcement that the plans for regionalization as were laid out in the report and so on are now they're they're uh, mothballed. Um, but I just want to say that. As an LSD, one of the things that we do have to kind of keep our eye on is um, the discussions that they'll be having with the regional service boards um, to make sure that there is some change in the way regional service boards operate if that's how we're going to go, go with things. Because uh, right now, the regional service boards have no oversight. They're at arm's length from the government. So if you have an issue with for example, now with garbage collection and the fees, there's nowhere to go. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, ombudsman or anyone that you can speak to about it because it's it's completely separate and apart. So it could it could uh, create a bigger monster than regionalization. Okay, just pick that apart a little bit for me because how would that constitute a bigger monster or issue than regionalization? Sorry. Um, well, and these are all suppositions. This is not anything that's been, you know, uh, officially discussed or anything like that. But, for example, when uh, the service boards put the garbage fees in place and it's like this is the set amount, whether the house is empty or not, um, doesn't matter. This is what it is per house. Done. And there was nowhere to go to say, hold on now, why, why would we pay garbage fees on a house that's been empty for 20 years? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the potential is there if things aren't changed a bit, tweaked a bit, um, that they could say everybody is going to pay $3,000 property tax, and that's it, and there's no questions about it, and it's nothing to do with where you live or what you do. This is what it can be. And there's nowhere to go to say, hey, that's not fair. You know what I mean? Um, we need to make sure that there's oversight on how they do things. Fair enough, because it can't be just something comes out of left field and no one has a process to ask questions about it or to appeal it. So that makes sense exactly. to me. Yeah. Okay, so w with that issue, anything else on that one before I have a couple of quick questions for you? Uh, no, I okay. just wanted to kind of put that B in somebody's bonnet. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense to me. So I suppose, and I, I don't know if it's every single LSD and every one of their elected representatives on the LSD committees, but now that the government has said no, to regionalization in the current proposal made by MNL. 
do you think that should spell the end of the road or do you think that there's another layer of conversation needs to be had because at some point organically we might find ourselves in the need to be more collaborative and a bit more cooperation so what do you think should happen next yeah so i mean here in our area um the group of us that sort of kicked off about it in the beginning um from blake town to greens harbor uh we've been ever since this all started we've been working together first of all to refute that report but now since then it's been to work together on how this what this would look like um until that announcement came out just recently from the provincial government uh we were looking at um a feasibility study um for the whole area um whether we go ahead with that now that 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 announcement was made uh, i'm not sure but we are kicking around ideas about how uh the freestanding lsds could instead of um, let's call it amalgamation, the dirty word, uh, instead of that, it may be creating a um, regional development board within a certain number of communities so that you're working as separate units but together. So there's room for that sort of discussion as well. Yeah, and I mean, and that's not uh, reinventing the wheel either. The red boards were part of the uh, landscape exactly. not that long ago. Uh, inside the world of operating LSTs, my understanding is you only have control of certain number of services. And I think that number is seven. Yeah. So yeah. water, sewer, uh, garbage, yeah. fire, yeah. pet control maybe, well, snow yeah, clearing obviously, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and lighting of streets. So yeah. for any services outside of those, how are they achieved inside an LSD? Uh, committees. Okay. So, like, you have a, a community has a rec committee, for example, and the rec committee can apply for grants, do fundraising, um, you know, sort of create the momentum to get things done. Okay, that makes sense to me. Because I really do think, uh, let me just ask you, because you said amalgamation and then very quickly uh, deemed it to be a dirty word. Why do you think that well, is? I'm saying that in the, in the government side, they don't like to word the use, use the word amalgamation. Yeah, I suppose that's how we all of a sudden got to the American term of the county system as part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting stuff. And I do think, and some people in the uh, local service districts have been quite vocal in their uh, frustration with anything that I say about this issue because I just do think that even if you listen to folks who examine population trends and age demographics and all those uh, those issues, mm -hmm. at some point there might not be economies of scale or tax base to even provide those seven services, depending on the number of people that remain and young families leaving or what have you. So I do yeah. think the unfortunate reality that we're facing is that many parts, uh, maybe some of the larger centers as well, but certainly some of the smaller communities, the writing is on the wall. It might be great today. It might be working fine today. But the uncertainty of tomorrow thinks, makes, makes me think that there's got to be another conversation. It just doesn't have to be dead in the water because government said no to this particular proposal uh, and the know, potential exactly. for 25. Pardon me? Exactly. Like, we're not, under, uh, we're not under any false illusions that everything can remain status quo. But we, we felt strongly that that report was not the way to go. And so now we have to pick our way through how it will go but our big thing as lsds was we want to be part of the conversation that was the that was the big thing for us because you're determining our futures um i agree with you that you know 
demographic changes and so on and so on. But that will affect small municipalities more even than LSDs because the LSDs are paying for services we receive, right? So like in my town, we pay for our fire fees, which includes the street lighting. Like we call it fire fees, but it's the community fee. Um, And that is your fire hall, your fire service, and your street lighting. Most people have their own septic, their own water, or a community well that is shared. It's private, but it's like shared by 10 or 12 people, you know? Um, And you pay separate and apart from the community. You pay that fee to pay for your water. So um, we don't have the high overhead that some of these small municipalities do that really their fees are to maintain the municipality um, the municipality act. Everybody has the same rules they have to follow. And if you have a small tax base, it means your taxes are higher because you're trying to maintain the same level of service. Yeah, because the math on the operational cost don't, doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Appreciate so, the time, Nancy. Last thoughts to you before I have to say goodbye. Yeah, well, I got two quick things. Um, one is uh, working on the um, getting doctors in the clinic in Whitburn. A group of us have been working with recruiters. Uh, but it's been brought to my attention that it's going to be really difficult to get doctors of any stripe, new or relocated, um, into our system until we get the blended pay system that's uh, effective I think right across Canada, um, doctors are not going to come here without that uh, that level of pay. Um, and then the other thing is kind of a PSA, really. Um, I just found this out uh, through my doctor leaving, but doctors are no longer allowed to to give. And maybe everybody knew this, and I didn't. Doctors are no longer allowed to give you your medical records when they close their practice. Uh, they have to by law be all shipped off to a place in Ontario that stores them for 10 years and there's a fee of between 60 and 80 dollars if you want copies of your records. Your doctor told you that's the law? It is the uh, rules with the uh, College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons. Wow that seems like propping up uh, private enterprise to me because I do know a friend of mine their family doctor retired about a month ago and he collected his medical records. He was given a couple of weeks, uh, heads up, mm-hmm. and he went and got them. So I've little, I'll have to follow up with the college and see uh, if that's the case across the board, and if so, why? Because it kind of makes very little sense to me. You're imposing for a family for upwards of about 300 bucks to get your medical uh, records back it, in hand? It, it's uh, 80, 60 to $80 for one person, and then for the second person, it's a percentage of that, and then for okay. every additional person, it's a percentage of that. So... Um, it still will add up. Uh, but this, I've been asking for my records now for about a month. Hmm. And um, um, yesterday I wrote a <laughs> nicely worded email. And um, <laughs> and I got a call this morning. And I had a great conversation with my doctor. And she explained that this is the new rules with the College of um, Physicians and Surgeons. So. Really interesting. Something now that I have to follow up on this afternoon. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Nancy. Appreciate the time Thanks. and the info. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, is he able to come back, Alphonse, quick? Okay. Uh, very quickly, something that happened in the House of Assembly yesterday. So some proposals coming from the opposition about Crown Lands. Now, the uh, PCs, NDP, and Independents voted 
to proceed with some changes to Crown lands. The uh, sitting majority Liberal government refused to follow along. We're hoping to get Pleeman Forsey on. He's the person who put that uh, proposal on the floor of the House because we all know it's a complete debacle. Individuals finding out decades later that the plot of land they've been living on belongs to the Crown. Then we also know the issue regarding Crown lands and corporate interests, uh, specifically the wind projects that are on the table. I've also had a little birdie whisper in my ear that we should anticipate some forward movement on some of these proposals in the not-too-distant future. So Crown lands is an issue that we can broach as well. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, still plenty of time for you. Don't go away. You're listening to the VOCM Big Land FM Radio Network. Stingray Radio Stations. Local news now. A VOCM News Update. This news presented by Mako Hearing Service, 84 Thorburn Road. Phone 726-HEAR. That's 726-4327. Good morning, I'm Jolene Grimes. Frustrations are boiling over in the NL fishery, this time with a sudden shutdown of the lobster fishery. Buyers are refusing to purchase product, and the FFAW says its phones have been ringing off the hook with calls from irate harvesters. Harvesters are gathering at wharves throughout the province to express their frustration with lobster pots in the water, but no one to buy from them. Mildred Skinner told the OCM Open Line with Patty Daly that some 20 to 25 harvesters have gathered in Hermitage to protest what's happening. She says harvesters believe the current situation is in retaliation for the crab situation where harvesters are refusing to fish for the prices set. You know, and they're being ill last day. They got, uh, you know, they're all they want to be doing is be on the water, catch a few lobsters and get paid a decent price. Basically, that's it. But uh, the buyers don't see it that way. It's the second time this week that the lobster fishery has come to a halt because buyers are refusing to purchase product. The FFAW is calling for immediate government action to amend legislation to allow harvesters to sell sell lobster to outside buyers from the Maritimes and Maine. The RNC are hoping to identify two people involved in a two-vehicle collision involving a stolen car on Rotary Drive yesterday over the lunch hour. Police and the fire department were called when the collision occurred around 11.30 Wednesday morning. There were no injuries reported for the two occupants of one of the vehicles, but the driver and passenger of the other vehicle fled the scene on foot. Black Honda Civic they were in at the time had been reported stolen. Witness reports described the male driver as approximately 5 feet 7 inches tall, unshaven with a navy blue jacket and a dark hat, while the female passenger was described as having blonde hair and was wearing a white sweater and black leggings. Search of the area failed to turn up any sign of the pair. RNC are asking people who may have surveillance or dash cam footage from the Rotary Drive area between Civic numbers 24 and 40 around 11.30 Wednesday morning to contact RNC or Crime Stoppers. First Voice is renewing their calls for provincial action on police oversight after what they're calling a lack of leadership from government on the issue. The organization released their report, Building Trust, Restoring Confidence, last October. It includes 26 recommendations on strengthening police oversight in the province. First Voice says they have met with government officials, including Justice Minister John Hogan, numerous times, but government has not made any commitments or counterproposals. One of the key recommendations is implementation 
creation of a civilian-led police oversight board, which the organization calls a common-sense idea and should be implemented without further delay. First Voice says they have begun working with provincial and national organizations to promote greater transparency and accountability in policing. However, they say those actions do not relieve government of their responsibility to act on the issues. Up next, your VLCM weather forecast. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to London for Say good morning to Amy Cody with Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador with their upcoming symposium. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Now, I know a lot of our conversations have hinged on a couple of key topics, one including regionalization. Just spoke with uh, Nancy Brace from uh, one of the LSDs. Talking about next steps, do you think this is dead in the water or where do we go from here? Well, actually, it's funny that you say that because I'm here in Gander at our uh, municipal symposium. Minister Howell is going to address our delegates tomorrow. So we're hoping to have some more information and get an update from her tomorrow on what next steps are going to be. We don't feel it's dead in the water. The, you know, the, I guess the titling regional government is probably moot at this point. Um, but we're interested to see um, you know, what their plan is with regards to the regional services boards, how they feel that can work. Um, so we're hoping to have some more information from her tomorrow on that. Sounds good, because I know that folks are content with the way it is today, but even if you hear from, say, Rob Greenwood over at the Harris Center, there still has to be more conversation here. We can't pretend that this has been settled and solved once and for all. Uh, Let's get on to some of the things going on at the symposium. One, I did look at the agenda. Uh, One thing that I think is interesting, and people might not think it's important, but I seem to think it is, and this is about preserving heritage in our communities, because if it becomes a vinyl-siding jungle or a dilapidated community, there go some not only business opportunities, but potentially tourist attractions and what have you. So what was offered by, I think the keynote speaker on that front was Dale Jarvis, because I seem to think this is important stuff. We lose it far too often. Some communities have done a bang-up job. Like you go to Bonavista, it feels different there. And I think that's important. What, what did we hear? It does. And Dale did a fabulous presentation and our membership was so engaged. Um, You know, he spoke about just that, like how important our heritage is. He spoke about, you know, some of the work he does from the historical perspective and and how he works with communities and individuals and making sure that the crafting and trades that they did so long ago don't die and doing sessions, finding people who are still familiar with how those things are done and and you know how do we engage them to teach those crafts to others so that we can keep the heritage alive and and keep it a living heritage so you know his presentation was just dead on super engaging and it was an awesome kickoff to our symposium everybody is on such a high now and it was it just really resonated i mean we know history is so rich and we understand that we have lost some of it we can still get some of that back and we can work hard to preserve you know what we have so that more doesn't get lost so that was just an awesome kickoff practically speaking how does it work because preserving heritage comes with a price tag and even the most populated city in the uh, province here in st john's we've seen far too much of our heritage sites go by the wayside fall prey to the wrecking ball so was there any suggestion or conversation about how it works because municipalities aren't that nimble with the amount of cash kicking around so any thoughts on that front yeah, again, it's just 
partnership. It's working with our provincial government. It's working with Dale and his organization to make sure that we find those areas and that then we work to find out, okay, how can we make this happen? What needs, you know, what tools do we need? What resources do we need? How much money do we need? Um, You know, finding the importance of that individual craft or trade or, or, you know, historical piece um, of finding out what the connections are to that. Why is it so important? And basically just working together to really promote it, find opportunities for funding. Um, You know, Dale spoke about the grant amount that they received from from the provincial government. Um, And, you know, it just kind of took the room aback, like, holy cow, that's the only amount of money that you get. Like, that's such a small amount of money. Like, I think it was $150,000, you know, and they have to use that money to fund projects right across the province. So how do we use that money to maximize and leverage other pots of money from other funding organizations to make make these things happen? So it was just a great presentation, opened a lot of eyes, and really um, it resonated with all of us on how partnership and working together is so important. Now, I can't get a- ahead of what people have yet to say because they haven't spoken to the uh, symposium as of yet, but regarding health. So, you know, the health accord was released back in, I believe it was June last year. There's some 50-odd calls to action. Then the concept of what municipal leaders, what their role is in this so-called transformation. So, you know, when we had some communities that were offering uh, signing bonuses for doctors willing to come to their community, selling them service lots for a dollar, those types of things, immediately some communities said, hey, we can't have that type of action on behalf of one town or another because you might have access to some money or serviceable lots in Bonavista, but maybe not in other communities. So then we create just another layer of competition inside our own provincial boundaries. So what is MNL's thought on what municipal leaders should be involved in in this implementation of the health accord or just healthcare in general? Well, that's one of our um, symposium sessions is a session with Dr. Pat Parfrey about the role of municipalities in the implementation of the Health Accord recommendations. So he's going to talk to our delegates. He's going to let them know, you know, key points about the Health Accord. How do we educate ourselves about the Health Accord? What does the Health Accord mean to us in our communities Uh, from a regional perspective? What does it mean? And how do we become involved? How do we educate our residents? on what the health accord means how do we educate our residents on what is in the health accord um so again you know that's a a, such an important session that's happening here and i expect there will be a ton of engagement from our membership during that uh, that presentation with dr parfrey as well and i don't imagine there's a one-size-fits-all i use that phrase a lot because i think sometimes we think we can squish everything into the same envelope and come out with the same results because i just don't think that's the case for municipalities I would imagine there's a real importance for people to be able to paint a picture of what it means for a doctor or an, any healthcare professional to move here. Their amenities, what we have to offer, uh, history, you know, proximity to urban centers, whatever it is that they think makes their community attractive. Uh, fair enough, because that's going to be a good one. I'm, I'm actually going to pick uh, Dr. Parfrey's head on that particular issue coming up very quickly. Last one. Perfect. There was a campaign led by municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, to attract candidates to run in municipal elections because even in some communities not even enough to fill the council seats so uh, inability to come up with quorum if anything happens to one councillor or another so 
there's also a, a presentation, I think, by one of the mayors, uh, maybe Tony Keats, uh, Mayor Dover, about mentorship. So is this an extension of that campaign to attract candidates, or is this something that's separate from that? Um, well, we have our Make Your Mark campaign that we've been running for the last couple of years, um, and we're doing that again this year. And again, it's about, you know, attracting uh, men, women, gender diverse individuals, just making sure they're educated on, um, you know, what your roles and responsibilities are in the municipal sector, what it takes to become a municipal councillor, the time involved. Um, and, you know, Mayor Tony Keats, I mean, he's been a mayor, he's been involved in municipal politics for what seems like forever in this industry. Um, and he's a past president of MNL. Um, he does his um, the Chamber's podcast, which talks about municipal issues on a regular basis. So, you know, I can't think of anybody more fitting who, you know, would present to our sector and talk about when we talk about ourselves, when we promote ourselves, when we talk about the work that we do for our communities, how how are we sharing that information? Who are we sharing it with? Um, you know, are, are we doing it in a way that is um, encouraging uh, for people to become involved in politics? Because the work that we do is so important and you have such a strong tie to your community and you want your community to be successful and sustainable. You want to attract people to your municipality um, and to the province, to all our communities right across the province. So to be able to hear from someone who has been involved on, on different levels for so many years um, and to provide such a positive message about the importance of the work. Again, uh, you know, Tony is just a mayor. Keats, just a, a fabulous mentor and uh, really important work going forward because we know that you know we need people on municipal council to be able to run and operate and manage these communities and we need to be able to do that successfully appreciate the time amy good luck with the symposium thank you so much i appreciate the time take care bye-bye it's amy cody she's the president of mnl let's keep going here so back in 2008, Petty Go was developed, I believe, in Orange County, California. Now there's over 200 locally owned stores, and one is coming to the city of St. John's. It's scheduled to open on Water Street on the 16th of May. The gentleman responsible and behind Petty Go, Newfoundland and Labrador, is Mike Hall, Judge Santu. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate your time. I think it's great that you're on the show, and I think it's great that you're bringing this to town. Now, whenever you get into a new business, because electric bikes are extremely fun. I've been on them. They're a blast to ride. But, of course, you're taking a bit of a flyer because you're getting in on the ground floor. Why did you decide to go down this path? So, just to give you some background, um, uh, I, I really wasn't exposed to the industry. Uh, so maybe over a year ago, I brought my wife's car into a service shop to get some work done. And the, um, the the sales guy that I had been talking to, you know, since I bought the vehicle, he said, you know, I was talking about what, you, what you've been up to and whatnot. He said, well, we just got back from Vancouver. And he said, he was showing me some pictures on his phone. And he said him and his partner were scooting around Stanley Park and these e-bikes. And I said, what's an e-bike? He said, and he looked at me, he said, you know, really? I said, yeah. I said, I, I don't understand. He said, Mike, these are everywhere. I said, so well, how does it work? He said, well, you, you go and you rent the bike. And he said, uh, they come with a, with the electric motor. And he said, you scoot around. And he said, you know, you've only got to do half the work or none of the work. It's up to you. I said, really? So I, uh, I do some boat tours in the summer. And all the guests that were coming here from all over the world said to me, Mike, we love Newfoundland, we love St. John's, the culture, we love going out around the different communities, but one of the issues we find here is that uh, the lack of um, 
transportation. You know, as as we all know, getting a rented car here in the summer is challenging at best, and uh, they, they couldn't find access to bikes to rent, let alone e-bikes. So got me thinking. I said, you know, well, maybe there's an opportunity here. So I reached out to Pedigo. I actually reached out to three different companies, and I reached out, and Pedigo responded fairly quickly, and he said, uh, Mike, we have targeted St. John's as one of our go-to destinations, and really what their goal was to go coast to coast because they got offices, you know, all down from the States and uh, predominantly a heavy presence out in Western Canada, but they really want to move into the Maritimes. So we were talking back and forth, you know, about the possibilities. When I started showing them some pictures of the scenery, they couldn't believe it. And it, then it, it, I guess, Patty, it makes you realize, you know, this place we live in, like, you know, every comment I get from people from away are like, you guys have no idea what you have. When they do the East Coast Trail, when they go walk down to Kitty Vitty, when they do the, the boardwalks, uh, they just come back and they're raving. So these people wanted to see this stuff uh, from the window of an e-bike. And I said, here's an opportunity. So as I've mentioned, like I was kind of only looking at maybe getting into this with four or six bikes. And uh, anyway, between the conversations with Pedigo, they said, Mike, we want to make St. John's Newfoundland. We want to put it on the map with Pedigo. And since this has launched, uh, you know, and we're getting ready to do this, the this thing has gone viral. I, I really, you know, is, is humbling actually because I wasn't prepared for the response. I thought, you know, I might get some, I might get some tourists that'll buy into this. I might get some interest in it locally. But the thing has gone insane, to be truthful with you. And I'm sending pictures to Pedigo out west, and they're like, Mike, we want to put this on our national website. Can you get some drone footage to include? Uh, we want to host this at our national convention. We're going to plan a trip where all the reps in Canada are come to Newfoundland. Like, it's really a big deal here. Nice. So, <laughs> it's, um, you know, so, Patty, so where were you on the e-bike to? When in, you Al- in Alberta. In Alberta, okay. So, you, were you in Calgary or Edmonton? Where did you go? In Banff. Oh, in Banff, yeah. So, they got a great... Did you happen to see Pedigo there? Because they got a Banff office. Boy, you know what? I can't remember the all those moving parts of those details. All I can remember was how fun it was to zip around the town of Banff on an electric bike. And so I'm not surprised it's coming to St. John's or it's coming to the province because we generally speak, and this not to be insulting, we're a little bit behind on some of these issues. But good on you for seeing the opportunity. I think it's going to be a real hit. Just a couple of quick questions for you, Mike. So can I simply rent from your shop or can I buy one of these Pedigo bikes? Oh no! So you can like we're we're sales and service and rentals. Okay. So, uh, I guess one of the questions I had to Pedigo is, you know, like I'm new to the business, I'm trying to learn the ropes. You know, how, what, what's my sales pitch with this stuff? And they they laughed and they said, "Well, you don't have to have a sales pitch. They call it put the butt on the bike." They said, as soon as you get a customer in your store, you give them a trial on the bike. He said, eighty six percent of the time they're going to walk out with the bike. He said, it is just truly a joy to ride these things. And I got to say, when I've had um, some of the local media down, we had um, Anthony Germain down and, and his film crew. And the smile that was on their face when they zipped up and down Water Street, when they came back, they said, this is amazing. So yeah, yeah, I'm really blessed. looking forward to seeing everybody's response to this. And uh, Pedigo, you know, is about a culture. It's not about just buying a bike. You, know, you can buy these bikes. I mean, there's lots of places you can buy e-bikes. but. Yeah. They're looking to set up a presence here where they're giving back to the community. They're very environmentally responsible. We recycle all the batteries. We want to help out local community groups. They're all about, you know, giving back. And 
this culture comes from California. When you look at their, their national website and how this whole thing got started, um, you know, that's the whole predominant theme through Pedigo was about uh, environmentally responsible. What can we do for sustainable energy, green energy? The, the bikes cost 18 cents a day to operate. Like, you know, they've got a folding model that we're going to promote to MON. We're going to, uh, uh, you know, that you can scoot down, pick up your groceries. You, you can buy baskets to put on this thing. You can bring it back to residence, put it in your dorm. You plug in the battery. The battery charger can go in your knapsack. It's about not even half the size of, a, of an egg can, or a carton container. I mean, it's, it's a really small thing. It plugs into a, just a regular 110 outlet. So we're excited, and you know, I'd like I'd like to see you doing your show on a Pedigo e-bike. <laughs> Listen, I'm into it. Uh, now, there's lots of variables involved here, but how far can you go on a charge? You know, because I guess if you go up Signal Hill, it'll have one implication. If you try to go out to Cape Spear, it'll be another issue. But how far can you go, generally speaking, on a single charge? So there's a lot of misconceptions, and I, to be truthful with you, I had to figure this out as I was going because, you know, and I really didn't get it. So the first misconception is people ask us, do they charge as you're pedaling? So there's no alternator in the bike. You know, it doesn't charge itself. In order to charge the battery, you either remove the battery and plug it in, or you can plug it in, you know, outside or wherever you, you, you got the bike. So, you know, that's, that's the first misconception. Number two is it's really challenging to answer your question because the bikes have different modes. So the more you pedal, the longer the battery lasts. If you want to just stay on mode six and let the bike do all the work, so mode six for your listeners would be you're on full battery power. They'll say that the bike will do between 85 and 100 kilometers on full power, you're, and you're not contributing to the ride at all. Now, if you want to start pedaling and put it on level three, that means the bike is giving you 50% of the power and you're giving 50%. Then you could go up to maybe 300 kilometers before the battery dies. So, but as, as you're, you know, you're scooting around the city or as tourists are taking these things out, we're going to give them the charger to put in your backpack. So you want to go down to Bannerman, you want to go down to Kitty Vitty and have yourself a point. Well, you're going to be looking for a charging station to plug your bike in because as you're sitting there having your lunch, you're going to plug your bike in and the battery's going to charge up again. And, you know, within 45 minutes, you'll be up to top charge again. How much is a, uh, one of the bikes? I guess there's different models. Oh, uh, they start off, I mean, there's 18 different models. The majority of their models are selling between 2,600 to 3,800. Then you get into some like the some of the specialized stuff, like for the guys that are professional mountain bikers, they're into you know the uh, the hardcore stuff on the hills. Some of those things are like 10, 8, 11, 2. But for average people, uh, you know, who are we'll say middle aged, 35 up, and want to get outside, enjoy outside, haven't been on a bike in 20 years, got a bad knee, got a bad hip. Well, you know something? Here's your opportunity. You can out and enjoy the outside. You can scoot all over St. John's. You can go to Mount Pearl. You can go wherever you want to go, and you can just enjoy and feel feel the great outdoors and have fun again. So that's what we're promoting in terms of a, a business mantra is enjoy life, have fun, ride a pedigo. Appreciate the time, Mike. Uh, good luck with it. You'll probably see me in the shop. Well, listen, our grand opening is May 16th at 10 a.m. We'd love to see you down, and uh, it'll be complimentary. Come on down and see us. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. So my call, bringing Pettigo to town. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, I think it's interesting that the electric bike is coming to Newfoundland and Labrador in much greater form than it was. So I don't know. Some people out there already have an electric bike. I don't know where they got them. But someone wrote an email, and apparently I know this person. I don't recognize the name. 
They say that, you know, in addition to that e-bike, why don't you talk about the bike program that was in place where you lived in Alberta and that being Jasper for so many years. So what they have is it's called the white bike program. So people donate bikes and they get repaired by volunteers, what have you. And what happens is the white bikes are just all over the community. You can just pick one up, say, outside your apartment building or your, uh, your home, get on a white bike, ride down to the store, go get your groceries, go to the liquor store, whatever you're at, and then just leave it wherever your final destination is, and the next person picks it up and uses it. I mean, I loved it. We all used them when we could because it was so convenient and it was free. The problem became that not everyone treated the bike like it was going to be uh, used by someone else after they did. And sometimes they would stash it away in their own backyard, so they always had access to the white bike. But it was a really cool community feature for getting around, and they were absolutely everywhere. And the committee that operated them, they would take them in fairly frequently to make sure they were in good shape and in good repair because you don't want to get on a bike and all of a sudden it's got a faulty chain or the brakes are shot or whatever the case may be. So that person wanted me to bring up the fact that that was something that was available in Jasper, and we loved it. Would it work in a city like St. John's? I've got my doubts. Anyway, we're going to take a break here very soon for the 1130 News. But the issue regarding Crown Lands is going to be next. We're going to talk to Pleeman Forsey, the PC member for Exploits. There was conversation about Crown Lands in the House of Assembly yesterday, and there is a lot to this. We know that things changed demonstrably back in 1977 when squatters' rights were removed from the issues surrounding Crown Lands and ownership. So... Greg French, Clarenville Lawyer, has been on this program a couple of times. We'll probably reach out to Greg in the near future again to give us a recap of some of the legal implications and the quieting of titles and what that means for time and cost for families and, of course, uh, community organizations. And then you factor in the Crown Line issue as it pertains to big business because that's one of the bugaboos and the concerns that people have had, whether it be with wind projects or otherwise. Thankfully, we've landed on a place where there's going to be a land lease agreement as opposed to a land purchase agreement because if their business goes sideways, we can't have private companies owning huge swaths of property and to do whatever they might be able to get permission to do with applications to the province. When we come back, Plymouth Forsey, Crown Lands, look away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Exploits. That's Pleeman Forsey. Pleeman, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Yeah, Patty, yes, I just want to uh, touch on the Crown Lands issue, of course. Uh, we put through a PMR yesterday in the House of Assembly. But as far as, Patty, you know, look, we all know there's there's a number of problems, uh, of course, plaguing Crown Lands. I get calls, uh, you know, other MHAs get calls, and, and I know you get calls. Uh, but the biggest biggest issue plaguing Crown Lands probably today is, is Section 36 uh, of the Act, you know, Adverse Possession, which was uh, commonly known as squatters' rights. And but today, this is costing residents financial, you know, financial stressful burdens today. Patty trying to sell their homes and properties, you know, to downsize or sell for for whatever reason, you know. So uh, now. Now, Patty, I know I know this goes back decades, you know, probably uh, multiple governments, I guess. But uh, you know, in 2015, the review of Crown Lands was done, and and eight years later, we're still in the same mess for Crown Lands. So, so yesterday, yeah, we put for a uh, private uh, members' resolutions, you know, to bring to bring uh, forth immediate. Uh, we wanted immediate legislation to try to fix some of this issue. We did put forth some some suggestions, and uh, with hopes, you know, that we could uh, we could see some legislation soon. But uh, it seems though that you know the Liberals voted all voted down the PMR, and, and and I'm not expecting to see any any legislation anytime soon. What specifically were you suggesting could be amended outside of just Section 36, for instance? Well, uh, 
Patty, the uh, the amendments to the Section 36. You know, there's a couple of a couple of amendments to that, of course. Uh, I, uh, the big issue that we're seeing, and, and I know other people have talked about it, it's the 56 to 76 period there where uh, we're trying to do the search of lands that people just can't uh, can't get the searches done. They can't uh, prove that they own land. They may they may have deeds, and that, and that's another problem in itself. Deeds are, are transactions done by person to person, lawyer to person, that kind of stuff. And it was it was done under the registry, so they have to go back to 20 years to try to prove from uh, 56 to 76, and they find themselves in a predicament that lots of times that the people they bought it from are no longer around. Uh, people that uh, were in the communities at the time, they're no longer around, or they're they're unable to uh, recollect the time periods of that. So so that was creating a, that creates a very very big problem in in section 36 of the adverse possession. So uh, we were looking for changes in that, but it's something, Patty, that the government would have to do, uh, you know, whichever government. Uh, but this is something that the government would have to do to bring in, um, you know, probably an unanchored period. You know, we're not uh, we're not trying to uh, encourage piracy of lands or anything like that. We know this is this is still a, a delicate uh, delicate document, and it still needs to certainly. Uh, certainly uh, legislation put forward and, and discussed so that the right channels are followed. But we were looking for an unanchored un time period uh, to take out the 56 to 76 so that people, you know, after so many periods of time that, they, that they've been occupying their house, they've been living in their houses, uh, you know, doing the properties, paying, paying municipal taxes, uh, lots, uh, lots of concerns there, lots of reasons that they could do so. So that will give somebody a chance, you know, to prove Yes, I really do own this property. I really do own this dwelling, and 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 that's what that's what we're aiming to uh, aiming to put forth. You know, not not just somebody going squatters' rights and uh, and squat down a piece of land. Okay, it's mine. So that was one thing that we were looking for. Uh, then, before we move on, just okay. uh, uh, clarify if I'm wrong. There's another complication inside Section 36, if I remember correctly. You know, when you're looking for a title, there's something called a quit claim that people can indeed achieve in negotiations with the provincial government, but it's not like a grant. It gives you no guarantee of title. So is that something that was addressed in your proposal? We also put that forward to the, to the government as well, uh, a quit claim, a quit claim document that would uh, sort of release the interest that Crown Lands add in the, in the land itself and, and put the onus back on the applicant. Now, this would not uh, give a guaranteed title. You know, one, one, that would give it, give it in the hands of the, uh, in the, uh, in the, in the claimant, in, in the person that's looking for it. Uh, still not a guaranteed title, title, but it would release all interest in the documents from from Crown Lands, which which would in, in that case give people more options to to work around, uh, you know, contracts had to be drawn up still by lawyers and fees and that kind of stuff. So so that that's that's an option that we put forward as well. And while while they're doing that, Patty, regards to the fees, we we know that the price of land then when, when it comes to Crown Lands, Crown Lands want uh, want current day prices. So to you know, which probably up in the uh, fifteen to probably twenty thousand, uh, depending on the land itself. You know, it, it's exorbitant uh, amounts of pri uh, prices that you want for the fees. Plus, then you got lawyers' fees in in, in uh, involved in that. You know, you could be up to thirty, thirty anywhere to thirty to fifty thousand dollars to try to get your land straightened out, which is a long, long time, and an awful lot of costs. So we just want the land fees. Um, not saying, not saying it's got to be current. Uh, not saying it's got to be. 
you know, we'd like to come up with a fair price of, of, of what the land itself should be, given given what the person is after going through and, and what they're after paying on that land and keeping the taxes up. So not current day prices, but, you know, a, a respectable price anyway. And how they were using the land, there's a difference between uh, have a home on a piece of Crown land versus having a business operation that either is in full or in part on Crown land. And there's actually some distinction inside that section too about the size of land that the minister may indeed afford a grant to a person as something like 30 or 35 hectares or something I think is the cutoff. Uh, okay, you were going to expand on the preliminary what else you had spoken to in this uh, private member's resolution. And uh, well, that's just that's three things, Patty. That we we picked out. And now, uh, you know, I know Crown Lands has gotten proposals from different ed- individuals and uh, whatnot. And there was probably probably over a hundred proposals. But but when you take them all together, they they come in. You know, you can narrow those down to to a few few. Uh, few options you know but uh, when we were doing up our uh, PMR we did look at the lands act and we did uh, go through it and uh, you know we came out with a couple of options that what we're trying to do here Patty our, our main aim that we're trying to do here we know there's a problem with crown lands everyone knows there's a problem with crown lands we'd like to see government bring legislation through so that we can debate it in the house of assembly and come up with a fair solution that meets everybody's needs so people are not in those predicaments another 20 years 50 years even today you know that they're not in those same predicaments we got to start the conversation we need to have those conversations we need to fix the fix the crown land situations so another part of that was the uh, we we look for one registry of title because crown uh, re- registry of deeds and the crown titles uh, seems like there they're, there's a disconnect there somewhere so we'd like to see at least one registry of titles so that when, when this is done, if you start today, I know we've got to go back through, uh, you know, there's, there's someone got to be go back through, go through the registry of titles, move it over to the registry of deeds. That's, that's a lot of work in itself, uh, I admit. But if you start today with one registry of title, 50 years' time, Patty, they may not be in this situation. Hopefully, and we shouldn't be in this situation. So that's we need one registry of title. And last thing, Patty, was uh, legislation. Without legislation, of course, uh, we're not going to see very many big changes to this, uh, uh, to the problem of Crown Lands. And, you know, it's got to be brought through the legislation to the House so we can debate this and have, have this put forward. So that was the four, three, four or five things that we wanted to put through. It's a start. It's uh, it's got to be done. Those dis- discussions got to be done. But we want the government to bring through some legislation so that we can get this started and uh, and this move this Crown Lands Act Act ahead and and get people uh, back to where they should be. Appreciate the time, Tony Plema. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. I mean, something has to give there. And I believe we're the only province in the country that has two distinct entities: Crown Lands Registry of Deeds. So, once again, I don't know why that would be the case. But for government to vote against this, like, it'd be curious to know, whether it be for Minister Bragg or whoever, certainly the cabinet minister, for instance, or the premier himself, is that what exactly was wrong with this private member's resolution? And do they not think that the issue surrounding Crown lands is not only complicated, but it's unnecessarily time-consuming and cost-prohibitive for so many people to be able to entertain any sort of lengthy quieting of titles? So if you're a government member and you'd like to join us on the program tomorrow to talk about why your side voted against this in full, it would be nice to have some more details because obviously people must be able to acknowledge, regardless of what party you're in, that the current status of Crown Lands just simply does not work. Let's take a break. Final break of the morning. When we come back, we're going out to talk about the Whitburn Health Clinic. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. 
Uh, welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Andrew. Pretty around the air. Good morning. I guess it's still morning over in Newfoundland. Um, I'm, I'm across in Europe here now, so we're into the evening. Um, I just wanted to touch base again and uh, and give a little update. I've been pretty quiet on the Whitburn Clinic issue since uh, since earlier in the spring, last part of the winter there. Um, but since then, we um, we formed a committee with uh, the surrounding communities, community leaders, and this was originally done to to talk about recruiting ER doctors. Or, well, at first it was uh, for recruiting urgent care, and we all said, you know, we're going at this. We want to recruit ER. You know, that's our goal. And you know, they were uh, Eastern Health was gung-ho on it and there's been very little movement since to kind of uh, lag we were promised uh, we were going to have bi-weekly meetings we haven't had one now uh, almost in a month and uh, so we were really left out of the loop again but there's a number of things after happening since then that raise more red flags because I've been saying all along this is the government has no intentions of opening that clinic and I've read that that health accord 10 times and they're after making steps. On the website, it used to say that clinic served 20,000 people. Now it says 2,500. And that number is low. That's only including the town of Whitburn, Blaketown, South Dildo. It doesn't include the 1,000 in, in Dildo. It doesn't include the 1,000 in New Harbor, which is, you know, still within 10 kilometers of that clinic. They're, they're purposely making it seem like that clinic is unimportant and needs to be closed and um, a real indictment to to all of this and it really bothered me I, ha I got wind that emergency equipment had been taken at the clinic so I sent a letter to Eastern Health and I questioned I said has any emergency equipment been taken at the clinic and the girl uh, with Eastern Health wrote me back and said uh, well, yes, the, the crash cart has been removed and the defibrillator. And I said, well, why is that, you know? And she said, because our mandate is to provide urgent care and not ER, and we don't want to have a defibrillator there in case someone would be uh, tempted to use it. And that's not our, our mandate anymore. And I said, so a, a stadium or a community center or a school is better equipped because at least those facilities, you know, would have an AED. But Whitburn uh, has not had nothing, no AED, no defibrillator. So if I went in and dropped down of a heart attack, they had no defibrillator to, to treat me. And that's a health center. It's ridiculous. And once the, the issue was raised, uh, in her credit, our MHA, uh, she did uh, work on it hard and got an AED installed there, you know, several days later after I raised the point. But why was the defibrillator removed if they are, in fact, putting urgent care or uh, ER back there at some point? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. Well, I don't even understand the concept of it's not our mandate to have a defibrillator. What does that even mean? Because I think you've made the point that, sure, I can go to my local rink and have a defibrillator. It's not necessarily in our mandate, you know, beyond canteen, ice services, rentals, and, and whatever else the case may be. It's a tool that may be of use, especially in the healthcare setting. So I'm not even sure what that reference to a mandate even means. 
It's ridiculous. Uh, Patty, I was trained as, now this is a very modest course. Now, I, you know, I don't want anyone to think, but I, I do have a Marine Advanced First Aid. And we were told in that course that if someone is dying or in an emergency situation, you use all means possible to try to save that person. And for a healthcare facility to be left without a defibrillator, it's absolutely disgusting. Disgusting. And, uh, and I, I will say, is it's, uh, I've been told there is an AED uh, there. And the, the thing is, the defibrillator they had could have been switched. Is, is a, a, a nurse told me that it had the ability to be switched. So it was not a professional, I'll call it, defibrillator. It's just it acts as an AED, which is, for people that don't know, it tells you what to do. It, it measures the you know, your your heart rate and all that, and it'll say shock recommended, no shock recommended, you know. So uh, uh, it could have been switched for urgent care use. Uh, but boy, did they take it out of there altogether. Uh, it's just another red flag for this road we're going down where I think the clinic is not going to be closed or not going to be reopened. And another point I'd like to make here today now, I asked Eastern Health, I said, show me the numbers. Show me the numbers of of uh, statistics and they sent the first lot and they had it all jumbled in together there was no way to make any sense of it uh, and that probably was done to to uh, work the statistics in their favor i said no i want a breakdown of each facility each facility um you know the, so that is very clear so in 2017 2018 2019 2020 whitburn clinic saw 24 patients a day Placentia Clinic in those same years saw an average of 12 patients a day. Old Perlican saw an average of 18 patients a day. Those two facilities are, are open. Ours is closed. That don't make any sense to me at all. And we don't, we're down to three days a week, eight hours a day. Ridiculous. Even the way they've used numbers in uh, other areas as well about, say, for instance, the uh, argument about obstetrics for between Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor. You know, we're told one set of numbers, uh, but if you look back historically about the number of residents served by either the rural community and their respective hospitals, were vastly different than what they use in their decision-making process regarding even obstetrics in those two hospitals. So numbers are easy to manipulate to try to make a point. Oh, definitely. And I mean, there's no different than lots of health facilities. Lewisport, same thing. There's 3,000 people in Lewisport. Uh, uh, you're an hour to Grand Falls one way, you're an hour to uh, less than an hour the other way to Gander. Does that mean they're going to lose theirs as well? Because they fall under the same criteria that, that uh, Whitburn fell under in this, this, this awful document called the Health Accord. Andrew, I appreciate the time. Enjoy your trip. And I'm going to squeeze out one more caller before I run out. Thank you, Patty. Have You're a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number three and say good morning to, I believe he's the executive director of the Mi'kmaq Cultural Foundation. That's Jeffrey Young. Good morning, Jeffrey. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Best kind. Is that the uh, right group that I'm referring to, the Mi'kmaq Cultural Foundation? Yes, you are. That's correct. Okay, terrific. Uh, tell us about the last push sell few tickets for the upcoming gala. Yep, so t uh, tomorrow is the deadline to purchase tickets for our seven annual dinner and auction, which this year is going to be held in St. John's on May the 27th for the first time. Um, so it's an evening of fine dining, indigenous entertainment, and wonderful um, items in our silent auction. And so where did you say it was, Bella Vista? Yes, it'll be at Bella Vista on Torbay Road. Terrific. So tell us a little bit about what kind of entertainment people can expect. Um, we have a Mi'kmaq um, um, 
singer Jennifer Lowe, uh, originally from Port Saunders, um, who will be coming out. Well, she'll be our main entertainer for the evening, and we will also have the St. John's Mi'kmaq Women's Circle. They will be there to do um, an opening uh, at the event. It sounds great. So you say it's the first time in St. John's. Where's it been in the past? In the past, it's been in uh, mostly in Cornerbrook. Then uh, due to COVID, it was stopped for a couple of years. Uh, last year, we held it for the first time in Central in Grand Falls, Windsor. And now we're going to bring it back to the West Coast next year. So we're going to try to rotate it around the province in different areas um, every year. For how many years have you done this? This has been ongoing. Uh, this is the seventh one. So it stopped for two years. So would, this would be nine years. So inside your organization, you know, Preserve and Promote Culture and Heritage, what do the funds get earmarked for? So all uh, fundraising um, go, that we do, it goes into our cultural support program, which is a program that Indigenous, grassroots Indigenous organizations can apply for, uh, to um, for programming uh, in their communities. So it goes right back into our communities and in cultural programming. So what's involved in cultural programming? What do you mean? Give me a couple of specific programs. Um, so uh, grassroots Indigenous organizations can apply to the program to host a workshop or an event in their communities that helps uh, promote and preserve uh, the Mi'kmaq culture. So uh, before we run out of time, you've got the gala coming up, and it's at the Bella Vista. It runs from 6 to 10 p.m. on the 27th of this month. When's the deadline to get a ticket? The deadline's tomorrow at 4 o'clock. And how much is a ticket? Uh, tickets are $100, but if you buy more than one, there's reduced rates. Okay. Is there a uh, tax receipt? Yes, you can get a tax receipt on all tickets. I think it's great. I wish you nothing but the best of luck with it. Would you like to tell us anything else before we say goodbye, especially, I guess, where to get a ticket? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. You can go on to our website to get a ticket, or you can give us a call at 709-643-3438. Good luck with it, Jeffrey. Thanks for your time this morning. All right. Thank you. Bye now. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, just about out of time here. I've been getting notes and pictures from different parts of the province where people are protesting regarding the second time this week halt in the uh, lobster fishery. The buyers are no longer buying it, so the rationale behind, of course, that's up to you and your own opinion. So this most recent one is for uh, fishermen out in Fort, Port Harmon, Stephenville. They are protesting at the very moment. All right, pretty good show today. Certainly lots of emotions surrounding certain industries today seem to be a key feature on the fishery, but you know the deal. The topics that we discussed, whether you want to suggest something on Twitter or my email address, do exactly that. We'll see what we can do to bring the info to you again tomorrow morning. All right, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.